Luxicult is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. I want you to know one thing. You know how this is. If I look at the crystal moon, at the red branch of the slow autumn at my window, if I touch near the fire, the impalable ash, or the wrinkled body of the log, everything carries me to you, as if everything that exists, aromas, light, metals, were little boats that sail towards those isles of yours that wait for me. Well now, if little by little you stop loving me, I shall stop loving you little by little. If suddenly you forget me, do not look for me, for I shall already have forgotten you. If you think it long and mad, the wind of banners that passes through my life, and you decide to leave me at the shore of the heart where I have roots, remember, that on that day, at that hour, I shall lift my arms and my roots will set off to seek another land. But if each day, each hour, you feel that you are destined for me with implacable sweetness, if each day a flower climbs up to your lips to seek me, ah, my love, ah, my own, in me all that fire is repeated, in me nothing is extinguished or forgotten, my love feeds on your love, beloved, and as long as you live, it will be in your arms without leaving mine. That is Pablo Neruda. Hello and welcome to Lexicult. This is the podcast where we gleefully taunt the mundane, butcher the Latin and most other languages, and we also discuss a variety of occult topics. Exploring the intersections of science, art, magic, and philosophy, it's occultism for everyone. I'm your host, Lux Estrada, and if you're hearing the sound of my voice, that means that this show, and magic for that matter, are for you if you want them. There are a lot of different ways to be more free, and using magic or making space for a spiritual practice in your life can be one of them. As always, I don't speak for anybody but myself. Others can, will, and should disagree sometimes. How would we ever learn anything if we all agreed all the time after all? And like... People who try to be reasonable should be willing to do. I am willing to revise my opinion based on new evidence. All right, so I'm very stoked to be presenting another conversation that I had with Dave Neal, who you can also hear in episode 26, which is titled Metacognition, Neuroplasticity, and Healing from Trauma. 
So it's a good one. Check that out. Dave was kind enough to come and join me this time to speak about a very different topic, namely power. Here, in this context, we're talking about sociology, and I'm going to explain more in a little bit. But first, I wanted to say thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and my guests here on the show. I feel very grateful to have such amazing listeners, collaborators, co-conspirators, etc. Uh, you all are the best. Although I've made the choice to use social media a lot less lately, that certainly does not mean that I don't want to hear from you, so please don't be shy about reaching out. You can always send your thoughts, questions, uh, comments, suggestions, arcane revelations, esoteric understandings, what have you, to luxocultpod at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram at luxocultpod. If you like the show and you're into what I'm doing, consider telling a friend about it or posting about it on social media. You can support it with money on Patreon if you feel like doing that. It would be very helpful if you did. And if you do so, you can take a bibliomancy break with me. There are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will. And thank you so much to everybody who is already doing that. Your support really means a lot to me and it makes this all possible. And also, it's really cool getting the chance to do bibliomancy. So all kinds of good stuff. Thank you. I want to give a shout out to Anna and Relics, as well as to Ty, Ian, and Melissa. Cheers and much love. Much love also and much love to everyone participating in the Green Mushroom Project, regardless of what that looks like for you and your practice. I had the privilege of running a Green Mushroom ritual here locally for the Eclipse, which was really cool. It's been really rad to see how people have been integrating things into their practice and everything like that. I'll talk more about this uh, eclipse ritual after the interview, but there are going to be some links in the show notes where you can find some more information about the Green Mushroom Project, so definitely check that out. All right, so you might be saying to yourself, I heard you say a second ago, Luxa, that this episode is going to be about sociology, and maybe there's an indication in the title. I don't know. I haven't named it yet, but... Why, why, Luxa, are you doing an episode about sociology on your occult podcast? Well, imaginary critic in my head, I can reassure you that my madness typically contains some measure of method. I mean, typically. <laughs> uh, the short answer here is that this topic interests me, and I think the information is going to be really helpful for people in gaining context. Magic, in many ways, is about power, and sociology is one lens through which we can study it. Today we're going to be talking about things like social change, conformity, and control, and how these things iterate in a large-scale way within societies. We'll also be talking about, from a sociological perspective, how do the types of societies we live in affect our type of self, and what does that even fucking mean? We'll get into it later. There will be a quiz, so take good notes. I'm totally joking, of course, but I will be back later during a break to present a special episode within the episode featuring Shane Thomas, who was kind enough to come chat with me about some ideas he has regarding integrating one's personal values into action. Also, you won't want to miss the recently released Green Mushroom Choose Your Own Adventure style meditation, which was written by Shane, myself, and Joy the Sporceress, and read by E.K. Manu, who's the host of the Woodland Show podcast. In addition to sharing his thoughts, Shane was kind enough to perform some divination for me using his Pokemon card deck that he has built for the purpose. So as well as Pokemonsy, in this episode there will be poetry snacks and a bit of an existentialist cuddle puddle in which we will curl up between Nietzsche and Camus. This will all make more sense after the interview. 
Speaking of which, this episode is sort of a long one, so kick back and enjoy. There's a lot of info packed in here, and I hope that you'll find it helpful in contextualizing some stuff about the world, or at least be entertained by it. I'm planning to share a track of it later, which I made as part of a bibliomancy experiment some folks from the Green Mushroom Project and I will be running around the time that this episode is first published. But now, let's go ahead and get into it. Here's another enlightening chat with Dave Neal. All right, fuck yeah. Dave, welcome back. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you. Thanks for the return back. Hell yeah. Well, I'm super stoked to talk about all this interesting and probably, I'm guessing, like, has a possibility of being upsetting or depressing stuff too yeah i mean you know yeah trigger warning i guess on that but um that, that's all in how you look at things i mean when we get into these things you can look at it as an overbearing thing or something that you can get a grip on and uh you know change how you relate to it too you know yeah absolutely have being ignorant of something is not going to make it any less harmful or shitty in the world so Yes, knowing about something is the first step to uh, thinking about changing it, possibly, or whatever. As, as G.I. Joe told us, knowing is half the battle. That's right, yes. And the other half's bloody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the other half is gold, Dave, gold. <laughs> Knee deep in gore. <laughs> the process of turning blood into gold. All right, welcome to this conversation. <laughs> so... For the people that haven't listened to the last episode where you came to talk about metacognition and neuroplasticity and how those kinds of things can be applied to confronting trauma and helping oneself recover from it, Mm -hmm. what, in terms of what we're going to be talking about today, like how would you introduce yourself in this context? Well, let's see. I got my master's degree in social sciences and my master's thesis was basically on these. I did in a exploratory study on consumerism and character type and so i spent you know a couple of years talking about knee deep in gore i i spent a couple of years knee deep in this stuff and uh so uh yeah i'm i'm sadly familiar with it i've also been you know a pop culture fanatic my entire life i've spent a lot of time alone with a lot of television and movies and books and music you know so um there's you know uh i don't know how you relate to things is very important We'll get to that. I, d- I just don't want it to sound too doom and gloom. Um, <laughs> well, sometimes we get too, too much of a nefarious look at the powers that be, but I would refer you to uh, the Illuminati Illuminati trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson, where he talks, yeah. you know, the Illuminatus. <laughs> yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, you know, let's not give people too much credit, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, really a unending focus on materialism okay well maybe be a good time like define our terms here because there's a lot of different uses of so let's like when you're we're saying materialism in this conversation what do we mean right again uh we'll be talking non-magic on your magic show right yeah (laughs) we're not talking about the philosophical outlook of right like we're talking about like we're we're talking more about uh (laughs) we're going to be talking sociology today sure okay so um, in that point, we're talking about materialism as in the importance of the material, literal, physical, we could say things, wealth, wealth especially, you know, mm-hmm. the accumulation of material 
is materialism is a focus towards that. Okay. I'm a material girl. Buy me diamonds. That vibe, right? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, maybe we could also talk about, you know, what, how did those diamonds get created? You know, do you want them around your neck necessarily? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a lot of blood diamonds on that, you know, just in that example. But, oh, yes. You know, that's, that's a, yes, a whole you conversation. Know, the material world doesn't much give a shit about the blood in the diamond, you know? <laughs> Yeah. It's more about the diamond than the blood. Sure, sure. And I mean... We wash the blood off the diamonds before we ship them. Yes, and I'm almost starting to wonder to what extent, and this is a sidebar, but to what extent the, like, blood is necessitated for the diamond, you know, in some way, like, philosophically. Like, it seems to be the case in a lot of how our currency works and stuff, but... That's exactly, yeah. Um, and and uh, sociology explains out some of those ideas with conflict theory. We'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Fuck yeah. So um, I guess what we want to talk about is consumerism and what does that mean? Because, I mean, we're just talking a, a few little identifying factors and then maybe we can get more of a sociological outlook so we can talk about all the factors that we're going to be talking about that are the influencers on us. Weave us a tapestry, dude. Hell yeah. So um, consumerism and, uh, you know, this is uh, the definition I used in in my thesis. It was one that um, I found to be concise for, I did a lot of comparative analysis. Um, so uh, those characteristics are uh, acquisition and consumption as the means of achieving happiness. That's your first. A stress towards the new. And the third's my favorite. The democratization of desire. Doesn't that sound awesome? Ooh, very sexy. <laughs> yeah. And then, Democracy you know, and desire. <laughs> right. Money as, you know, money value as the predominant measure of value, you know, only monetary value. Whereas, you know, the term value itself can, you know, imply a whole different sorts of things that can get very philosophical. Absolutely. But we're talking about how many dollars is this worth as the value of something? You know, the commercial material value. I think that this even spills over into like other areas, like how many likes does this post get? Like it is sort of this like really basic superficial way of. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's big similarities here because, uh, well, and, and you're, you know, you're playing into being part of the mass, even in subcultural masses, you know, you, you identify yourself and, you know, and there's sometimes people can seek too much reciprocity in things like, did I get enough likes? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like put a little, maybe unbalance how much that should necessarily mean to you. Sure. And it's certainly, you know, a material aspect that is more concerned with that sort of thing. You know, those, those things all, all exist together, mm -hmm. you know? So that's, that's basically what consumerism is. And then, you know, consumerism is a result of a certain type of society. That's, that's what we're going to get to. We'll, we'll describe our society. So if we're talking about just the sociological outlook, okay? Right? Yeah. Sorry, I'm... Oh, yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> I'm I hear you here. got your notes there. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Last time I had none, and now I got too damn many. <laughs> so um, sociology developed, you know, and this informs uh, what it was interested in. It really developed, and, and of course, you're going to have influences, um, thinkers who 
you know, kind of informed sociology and psychology and anthropology. These all are three different facets of, you know, that experience. And there's just a different focus on it, you know, was the inner, the outer and uh, those sorts of things. So like, you know, social psychology is where sociology and psychology meet. And that's often the most interesting and, and useful information, you know, non-academically. So um, sociology developed as a, as a way to look at society, but it really resulted as a result of if I if we're talking about the late 19th century, especially in uh, Europe and North America. This is, you know, a lot of your English-based folks here and, and French and German, all that, that white mix, you know. But anyway. <laughs> General white people. <laughs> the, the 1880s um, intelligentsia, okay? That, that, who, who was making the rules and uh, who was telling you what mattered? Yeah, yeah. Who was, um, who was drawing all the fucking lines on the maps and shit? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So uh, that was a great time of social change, you know. Um, it really culminated with World War One, but World War One is the result of 50 years of huge social change. The uh, the change from an agrarian to a industrial economy is humongous. The ramifications of that are really big, and we'll get into some of them. So that alone caused a lot of change, and a lot of change occurred in result of the change, and more change, and more change, and then a world explosion. But prior to that world explosion, you had a lot of things, Marx and Engels, okay, Socialism, communism, these different competing ideas with capitalism, um, sociology developed from capitalists. Part of the implied mindset is, okay, society is a big thing. If you change too much of it at a time, it's dangerous, which it is. And we'll talk about that. But it was more of an excuse to keep the status quo, whereas half the world was screaming for all kinds of change. And so you had a lot of people who were, you know, Part of the owners, of course, and, you know, the status quo saying, wait, 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 let's look at the status quo here and, and see how it operates. And basically, I, I think the thinking was to, you know, justify a lot of things. And that's that's how it existed at first. It's very academic. It's very distant. And it's very showing how different social organizations work with each other and how change affects them. OK. OK. So, yeah, it's pretty abstract and it's it's pretty snoozy. So, but this is like, this would be like looking at evolutionary biology on like the societal level. Yes. Like, okay. This is, this is, this is a macro describer. Okay. These first two I'm going to get into are your macros and you like sociology because they talk about the micro and the macro, you know, so, you know, you can get your own little correspondences there. Okay. Okay. But, so yeah. Um, another way you could look at this is these guys, this first school, they're called the functionalists. Maybe their name will help imply. <laughs> We're serving functions, okay? So society serves a function, serves functions. Again, you really got to keep cultural competency. Wasn't a thing, you know, at the end of the 19th century like it is now. I don't even think it was like a concept, right? No, it didn't. It didn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd learn enough of it to take somebody's land from them. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess yeah, how it was defined, perhaps. But like the way that we think about it now, it probably wasn't really a concept. Um, as no, much. no. Manipulative intelligence and cultural competency are two very different things. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's your first school, and and there's there's some interesting concepts in there. It's not it's not all junk, you know. 
And they really were the first to like really try to look at society and these social systems and what their elements were. So you can take the biggest, broadest thing and then later we'll get into, you know, more micro stuff. But after a while of these functionalists, of course, when something develops, it it needs a pole. It needs an opposite. And that's when you get into conflict theory. And conflict theory is more about, and and again, it's mostly uh, more of a micro thing, uh, macro, sorry. Conflict theory is looking at the world as competing parties for, say, resources, for control, for power. And those in power behave in a way, you know, to keep their power. I mean, this, you know, developed from Marx and Engels, and then the sociologists just broadened it out. And a lot of feminist studies are a result of conflict theory. Studies of uh, the, the term, the power elite comes from, uh, I believe, C. Wright Mills, yeah, the sociologist. He put together a book where, I mean, he just looked how how power works. And he wasn't necessarily these functionalist guys. He was schooled more by the conflict because ideally it's both, isn't it? Everything's both. Sure, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's both and then some, you know. Depending on how you want to look at something, you use what works. Yeah, totally. This conflict theory is reminding me of like game theory. I wonder if they're informed by each other somehow. That's possible. I, know, I, I did not go in that direction. With I don't understand game theory enough to speak to it necessarily. But you probably don't thing, either, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> a big, I never had you know uh, highly trained people breathing down my neck asking me if I had it right in relation <laughs> to game theory. I did with conflict theory and functionalists. <laughs> you, know. you survived the experience, so you can have the authority to speak about it. <laughs> Uh, that was that was a fun time, actually. Um, you know, college is like anything else. It's 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 what you're putting into it. You know, your perception and you as an an active participant in everything. Yeah, fuck yeah. You said the same thing. Like you get out of it what you put into it, right? Right. And at the end of the day, anything can be uh, manipulated, uh, corroded, and that should never stop you from. You know, it's it's easy to become cynical with shit like that. Sure. But you gotta you gotta get past nihilism. That's a stop, you know, that's a stop in your development. It's a good thing, but you gotta you gotta keep rolling through it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But both both of these schools have things to teach us. Sure. You know. But you know, they both you can feel their tendency towards change and towards order, you know. Your functionalists are more about the order and your conflict theory theorists are more about no it's about these things coming together in conflict that's what causes change okay so the functionalists are like okay things fulfill certain functions naturally they're more like biological even it's more natural responses occur like you would think of in a biological environment okay things are what they do yeah okay the conflict is you know people getting together and deciding that they're being fucked and saying no fuck you you know, sure. People yelling "fuck you" at one another is probably seventy-five percent of uh, you know political debates throughout history. I and thought you were going to say Twitter. <laughs> I was going to say ninety-five on social media. Yeah, <laughs> never waste your time arguing with fanatics. Jesus, absolutely not. Unless you get your jollies that way. <laughs> right. You know, either fight with them or get away from them. Yes. You know, but don't call this stuff a debate. Yeah. You know? 
once you once you've descended to their level, you've already let your boundaries go, and you you're in it now. You're in the mix, right? <laughs> well, and then you have people who are in their own way agent provocateurs, and their job sure. is to rile people up. Or they're they're just trolls. Are you talking about trolls yeah, that trolls. just enjoy yeah. doing that for fun too? Well, like, yeah, yeah, and it's it's just... a it's a very undermining process. Sure, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it leaves everything just rotten. Yeah. So again, you got to get beyond their bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're maybe not going to get beyond it, but you know, you can. Absolutely. Yes. You can't you know. control what other people think, but you can control what you think and what you do with your own time. <laughs> so yes. Right. Okay. So we got our conflict guys and we got our, uh, functionalist guys and, and their concepts we'll, we'll use as applicable because some are important, but what immediately sparked my interest, and maybe it will to you too, just by hearing about, you know, the third of the, the big three theories is called symbolic interactionism. Hmm. Okay. Intriguing. And that means that we, um, you know, see things and interact symbolically through shared meanings or, you know, lack of those shared meanings, then we don't, you know, interact well. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah, the symbolic interactionists are more concerned about context and meaning and, you know, how do people perceive things? There's a lot more of that, you know, perception is is much more of a bigger deal in symbolic interactionism. And it lends itself to more micro sociology, more smaller groups, you know, and, you know, your social psychology areas and uh there's a whole lot of crossover, you know, between those two groups, especially in the in the good ones. I mean, if when I was doing academic work, I'll steal from whoever's useful, you know. Sure. I noticed, you know, some people will use where they're coming from as a thing to hide behind as well. And that's that's just no good. That just doesn't get you anywhere. But again, it all depends on what you want to do. Do you want to, you know, understand something or do you want to? you know, just get angry. <laughs> yes. Like, I think that there's a sort of distinction that we might be able to draw between a debate and a discussion where like a debate is something that you do for an audience to try. It's like rhetoric. You're trying to win an audience over to your side rather than to find a common ground with the person right. you're talking to. Like a discussion is more about together discovering a truth or a, a truth adjacent thing or whatever, like a, an understanding, a shared understanding. So Definitely. And that's something that seems to be lost. Like people, a lot of times it seems like people just, they, they're not really interested in the thing they're talking about. They just want to have this like weird social interaction where they like feel better about themselves afterwards or whatever. So yeah, it's very confusing. Oh, it is. There's, there's a, there's a whole lot of Freud going on in this shit. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I, yeah, whatever. Hey, what's up? It's me, Alexa from the future. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. It was interesting to hear about these different schools of sociological thought. The functionalists, the conflict theory folks, the symbolic meaning people. Dave is going to break down what the definition of society is from the standpoint of sociology here for us in a few minutes, and we'll have our episode within an episode featuring Shane a bit later. But I wanted to hop in here and share with you this very salty poetry snack written by Sally Forth. This is Twigs and Gravel. Would that my words could kiss you slowly with nettles and salt. 
sink into pores of skin down to subdermal succulents, then stick there thick with blood. Would that my whispers could weave through the mazes of your mind like tentacles snaking to break frozen ground. I would shatter the mirror which transfixes like a flowing storm. And would that my whimpers could caress your neck softly and squeeze, finding purchase where right angles meld into flesh, opened eyes wide, seeing the scream. Would that my song could save you the solitude of your solipsism, the loneliness of your languor, the tragedy of your talos, the pathos of your perpetual disarray. Would that my words could kiss you slowly. Would that my whispers could weave through the mazes of your mind. Would that my whimpers could caress your neck softly and squeeze. Would that my song could save you the solitude of your solipsism. Would that my words could kiss you slowly with twigs and gravel with nettles and salt. <laughs> salt. Speaking of salt, we're going to be hearing a little tidbit from Frederick Nietzsche later on, who I like to refer to as the king of salt. But now, let's dive back into some sociology, shall we? Here's more of my conversation with Dave Neal. Now, when we look at, you know, society, Okay, what is sociology as a study of society? Well, what the fuck is that? So um, what they basically determined, if you're trying to encompass something from the smallest kinship, traditional group, you know, what makes, you know, an extended family, when does that become a society? You know, mm -hmm. because we're going to talk about societal growth and change, right? Sure. So the five, you know, your, your five pillars, your five machinery, your five big social structures that occur, and you know, this is as much anthropology as sociology, are a system of family, economy, education, religion, and some kind of political organization. Okay. And that can be very small and very loose, you know, very informal. And, you know, the, the functionalist said, you know, that society starts that way is almost like extended clans building and building. And at a certain point, these things develop and then when you have those five things to a certain degree, you have a society. Okay, so that's your fallback for what a society is, according to sociology. Okay. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. So those the, that's what you got to have. So if you're looking at that, you know, and you're looking at bigger things, you can look how it relates to those five social structures. Like uh, you can look at power. Where does power reside, you know, in, in our social structure, uh, you know, macro, uh, you know, the country mm -hmm. you know, within those social structures, you know, because in, in, in certain instances, politics or, you know, politics, law, you know, it has it has certain authority, influence and power. And then in other regions, you know, um, education is has a realm of power and influence in, in, you know, your different social structures. So they exist as structures that, you know, they're all dynamic and they all relate to each other. You know, you're studying how they, how they work with and against each other, really. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So the functionalist is more about how they work with each other and the conflict is more how they work against each other to cause change. Because the functionalists aren't concerned, as concerned with change. They, they want change to be a lot slower than a conflict's, uh, 
conflict theorist outlook, I guess. And the people that are into the symbolic interaction, that's just... It's all about perception. Okay, it's, yeah, depending on the context, it sounds like. Okay, cool. And, and you can, you know, you can look at people engage in like a system of power, like a system of, say, law enforcement. There's, there's a whole lot of perceptions within that, you know? Sure. So how, how the members of that group perceive the, the law is going to affect the people they interact with, just as the outer people's perspective of the law is going to affect how they interact with the system, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's society. <laughs> so, you know, we know about industrialization, you know, and uh, I don't want to assume too much. We're talking about, you know, the majority of the economy moving towards producing things rather than, you know, substance farming or farming and selling, you know, and things like that. Yeah. So like we went from people living in like pretty small communities in general, like growing a lot of food and like products that you could turn into like textiles and shit, mostly doing that in their local area to like some a much different situation where things were on a much bigger scale much more streamlined. Yeah, complete shift. Like, I don't think we've really seen this before in history. Element of urbanization. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't I, I don't want to, like, don't hold me to it. I, I'm not a history expert or anything, but I do think that this is sort of like, uh, right, the Industrial Revolution is thought to have happened, like, just this once in history, right? Oh, sure, sure. If it happened I mean, before, we don't know about it. <laughs> like, you know, there's been other social revolutions that have caused a shit ton of upheaval, but this one is... Yeah, this one's this one's ours. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, yes, there's all kinds of fun theories about how history might be a lot older than I don't know. I look, don't don't write me about it. I don't know. <laughs> as far as not for- only will not only will the industrial revolution be televised, it will provide a television for each household to watch it. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Thank you. I just wanted to keep make sure I was up to speed here. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. And then me too, you know, make sure we're talking about the same thing. But yeah, (laughs) industry, which is a huge thing. I mean, you know, we do have our, our huge multinational monsters, which, you know, is very different than, you know, there are still small businesses that thrive. Sure. And good for them. I would say, you know, a big part if we're talking about how we want to counter the power of this, this thing is to, uh, is to look to our smaller businesses and our artisans and, you know, people who aren't just about money. Yeah, people who are doing shit that you actually feel good about, you know, and that, and that actually is like helping you and your community and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, there's there's bigger things. You know, we, we really made a mistake with that mindset during the Industrial Revolution is looking at wealth creation as should not only drive everything, but be the thing. It's not all bad. Wealth creation isn't necessarily bad in itself, but too much growth can be bad in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, we had very little hindsight in, you know, what we were doing to the natural world yeah, what we are, you know. Well, and a large part of this, too, has to do with, like, the shift in how we were doing money, too, which is, like, another complex issue yeah. that people can listen mm-hmm. to the history, ad hoc history podcast about, um you know, this idea of like moving to a fiat currency, right? So like there's all kinds right. of shit going on here, right? So yeah. And you always have, you know, and that's the thing with society. There's, there's always things coming from different directions. And uh, whether things are good or bad really depends on your position. 
Totally. Well, yeah, it's so nuanced. Absolutely. So like, all right, we're coming like out of the Industrial Revolution and World War One, right? Like is where we are right now? That's really the the sparks of it. And then the 20th century is, you know, the century of industrialization for, you know, a lot of the world. You know, a thing when you're talking about these sorts of things, as other things develop, there's still parts of the world that haven't become a part of that development. And you can see you know, all different stages of different kinds of societies still in smaller cultures and things. And, you know, anthropology, that's really their department, you know. Mm-hmm. So that that's a very interesting thing to keep in mind because you still have, you know, leftover values and elements of that agrarian dying society as industrialization sweeps across. Things, everybody picks up the new and mixes it with their old. That's what's so great about as things age, they stratify and they change. And you can look at things like take uh, Hinduism, like how many gods there are. That tells you how long that thing's been around, you know, because things as they, as they grow, especially they stratify, you know? Yeah, totally. And uh, the social world is very much uh, the same way. Okay. So the social growth, you know, we start with that small, simple, and we get into the complex. And, and you know, as things grow and they stratify, they also fragment. And there is certainly uh, a difference in, um, let's look at the fragmentation of the division of labor. In a simpler society, a tradesman did everything. You know, you had a blacksmith did every step of the blacksmith process. Yeah, totally. And they'd also, like, mend your pots and pans or whatever you know like it was a lot less specialization because there was a lot there was just a lot less jobs there was a lot less different things that we were doing right like there's all kinds of jobs that just like now that weren't even like a fucking thing like right social influencer social influencer (laughs) yes the last great social influencer i think was the black plague that was a social influencer (laughs) that changed um that, that killed the surf. Dog, had a lot of know. followers <laughs> or whatever. Say what you will about it, but those who survived it did very well. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, fuck yeah. Everybody else was <laughs> dead. Like, you're like, it's just me and you and our piles of gold. <laughs> exactly. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. I'm here. Yeah, fuck. You know. <laughs> That's a, maybe not a meaningful question at that point, right? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so um, after industrialization comes post-industrialization, and the development of consumerism. One thing with industrialization is you get mass production, mass production. And what also exists in in this economy is the need for someone to buy the things that you're massively producing. So um, that's when we see these these great rises in uh, you know steel magnates and you know a lot of a lot of the buildings that you love to see plays and listen to music at are named after these dudes. They're almost always dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, in this country, you know, like uh, the Carnegie stuff at that point there and, you know, today it depends on who you're talking about. But the need to give back to society was seen to a certain degree as necessary just because um, once you get to the beginning of the 20th century and and even at the end of the 19th, the, you know, poverty rates in in urban areas. Wow, we better throw these guys some bones or they're going to start taking ours, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Sure, sure. I think that we can look back in history and see this mirrored in other places, too. And, you know, we we can look back with sentimentality and say, you know, they were really trying to help out their fellow man. Maybe they were. Maybe they were like, you know, if I got to give them a buck or two here and there, they're going to kick my ass every time I go outside. I mean, uh, yeah. 
I don't know. Who knows, right? I I don't know their life, and I don't know them as people. But anyway, yeah. we did we did see that happen a lot in the Gilded Age. Sure. And uh, still, I mean, those are wonderful. The Carnegie Museums I've been to many of. Um, you know, the Frick Museums. You know, those are a lot of these are results of industrial wealth. It's like, were these things like? built for the purpose of actually helping the poor or were they just a sort of like another ego stroking thing like ah now look at my cool museum look at how great and you know generous i am i don't know (laughs) i mean you might more think of like parks i guess is a better example for everyone than museums because you know you have two tiers of museums you have your more uppity museums and then you have your like pt barnum and you know cabinet of curiosity museums you know that's the people stuff (laughs) yeah but i mean and it's cool but is it like helping though like i don't know like if you really wanted to like i don't i guess i'm just kind of lost about like the motivations here but yeah i can see what you're saying it's it's really hard it's hard to know someone's intentions you know yeah you can you know observe as the behavior really um the thing that you said that the like bread and circuses thing made more sense to me that's all right yeah (laughs) (laughs) but um so you you see this and you 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 see this these competitive uh, mindsets in our society because the 20th century certainly has its share of conflict people, um, you know in the 20s the uh, dudes who you know were known as our uh, people I don't mean to say dudes as in a gender thing but um, who were uh, you know known as yellow journalists um, that resulted in a lot of social change going into these these horrific workplaces and these uh, horrific tenements and just describing what life was like there. Yeah, totally. You know, what's funny is sometimes you'll see in uh, film recreations of uh, there's a scene in uh, gangs in New York where you have the uptown people coming with the policemen to get a tour of the neighborhood to see how things work, you know? And that, yeah, that that's definitely a, uh, a tiered uh, kind of looking down, <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. And I do want to just point out real quick that dude is a gender neutral term here on this show. Oh, okay, <laughs> so, great. Don't worry great. about okay. it. Before we get into the next thing, how do you feel about taking a bibliography break? Greetings. It is I, Alexa from the future. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. We're going to be getting into that bibliomancy break in a few minutes here, and we'll be doubling our divination dose later on when Shane performs some Pokemoncy for me. We'll also be enjoying a short piece written by the very badass Joy, an ode to the void in nine parts. Fucking here for that. But first, I wanted to pause for a short musical interlude and another poetry snack. Here's some context. This episode will be released on May 23rd, And the number 5 and 23 are both significant in a number of places. Dave brought up the Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson earlier, and this is one example of a place where the number 23 takes on a sort of role of its own. This is, of course, in reference to Discordianism. The Temple of Psychic Youth also looked to 23 as being a meaningful number. And these are just a few examples. I'm guessing that lots of people listening might be thinking of some of their own. Are the numbers 5 or 23 significant to you? I'd love to hear your thoughts about the topic. As always, you can hit me up at luxacultpod at gmail.com, or you can get me on Instagram at luxacultpod. 
To celebrate this day of fives, some folks from the Green Mushroom Project and I will be conducting a group bibliomancy exercise, which is aimed at producing a corpus of text, which we can then perform some exegesis on and see where it leads us. Really looking forward to that. I mixed a track for us to listen to as part of this exercise to sort of like all get in the same headspace before we begin. It's a kind of audio collage that I made from clips which I found by searching for the number 23. It's quite strange. I'll play it for you here in a moment. But before I do, please enjoy this sweet and salty poetry snack by E.E. E. Cummings. This is poem number 23 from the book 100 Selected Poems. That's kind of fucking perfect. But that's no surprise. Hail Eris. Voices to voices, lip to lip. I swear to no one, everyone constitutes, undying or whatever this and that petal confutes, to exist being a peculiar form of sleep. What's beyond logic happens beneath will, nor can these moments be translated, I say, that even after April, by God there is no excuse for May. Bring forth your flowers and machinery, sculpture and prose. Flowers guess and miss. Machinery is more accurate, yes. It delivers the goods, heaven knows. Yet we are mindful, though not as yet awake, of ourselves which shout and cling, being, for a little while and which easily break, in spite of the best overseeing. I mean that the blonde absence of any program, except and last and always first to live, makes unimportant what you and I believe, not for philosophy does this rose give a damn. Bring on your fireworks, which are a mixed splendor of piston and pistol very well, provide in an instant may be fixed, so that it will not rub like any other pastel. While you and I have lips and voices which are for kissing and to sing with, who cares if some one-eyed son of a bitch invents an instrument to measure spring with? Each dream nasicator is not made. Why then to hell with that, the other this? Since the thing perhaps is to eat flowers and not to be afraid. <laughs> All right, fuck yeah. Let's hear this interesting audio interlude. This is the 23 Bibliomancy track. Mixed for me. Enjoy.
All right, fuck yeah, I hope you liked it. I want to say thank you so much to everybody who's participating in the project, no matter what that looks like for you in your practice. As I said before, uh, it's very cool to be able to be doing these strange experiments with people. So fuck yeah, super appreciate it. Perhaps people listening right now might feel like this is a good time for you to pause and do a little bit of bibliomancy of your own. If that's the case, don't forget to come back because we've got a lot more to share. Like right now, we're going to be getting into that bibliomancy break with Dave Neal. All right, Dave, welcome to the bibliomancy break. All right. <laughs> do Let's you find some wisdom? Absolutely. So, do you have a question? Um, I guess more of a general. Um, you know, I, I'm always trying to. Uh, integrate and understand and uh, expand my knowledge and understanding. So uh, maybe we could ask Eris, uh, what's the next stone I should unturn in my uh, greater expanding of understanding and knowledge? Okay. Hell yeah. All right. You've informed me that you don't have any dice, which is totally fine. I've got some right here. And all right. It looks like it's going to be from table seven, item one. All right. It's going to be from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Fuck yeah. Oh, yes. Let me go find it. I'll be right back here. No, I can roll with that. Yeah, this seems auspicious. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have located the text I have here. All right. The Ultimate Hitchhiker's Guide by Douglas Adams. Oh, Eris, what stone should Dave next unturn in his quest for wisdom and understanding? The beach was a beach we shall not name because his private house was there. But it was a small sandy stretch somewhere along hundreds of miles of coastline that runs west from Los Angeles, which is described in the new edition of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in one entry as junky, wonky, lunky, stunky, and what's that other word, and all kinds of bad stuff, woo, and in another, written only hours later as being like several thousand square miles of American Express junk mail, but without the same sense of moral depth, Plus the air is, for some reason, yellow. <laughs> Thank you, Harris. And Mr. Adams. <laughs> and Mr. Adams, of course. <laughs> I spent more time with him than most of my family in my teenage years. <laughs> so this is um, this, from the, the novel uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Oh, okay. I think it's saying that you need to go to the beach. <laughs> You know, there's something to that because I, I have been very negligent of the outside world. <laughs> I think it's been a rough couple of years for that for a lot of people. So, yes. All right. Well, fuck yeah. Thank you very much, Eris. So I asked you last time, do you have any general thoughts about divination that you would like to share? And maybe you have some evolving thoughts or maybe not. I don't know. Huh. I I don't do a ton of it. I'm probably more about listening to synchronicities and things like that. Okay. Than, Fuck yeah. Uh, any kind of formal system. I, I, I've, you know, I mess around some with tarot. I've thought about messing around with, you know, I'll, I'll goof around with it. I, I don't know that, uh, how well of a conduit it is for me necessarily. That's cool. Yeah. Some people will say that they'll do a divinatory practice just to get themselves in like the mindset for seeing more synchronicities. So if you're like seeing them already, right, I mean, sense. yeah, I don't know. Teach their own. <laughs> the mindset. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Let's dive back into some sociology stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we are going to 
talk about in our world, and we'll look at, you know, societal progress again from the perspective of character type. Okay, hell yeah. So I'm so curious, is this character type in terms of how how psychologists or therapists might define it? I'm not necessarily sure. We're looking at how are you basically, um, how are you designed to, where do you look to for your social guidance? Okay. Your 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 social meaning, your social control. Um, who who is your who has the tendency to be your most influential? Not that you like the most. Not that influential, you know. Which X Men do uh, you identify with the most, or whatever? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right, right. So what we're going to talk about is how that how a new character type ha- ha- started developing in post-World War II kind of American middle class. Okay, so maybe just real quick, we should go over like what the basic sort of character types are and then we can talk about the like new one that started showing up. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Oh, okay, hell yeah. I was just going to say that okay. that's what we're going <laughs> to cool. get to. Hell yeah. Um, is that this this uh, current one that we have developed into since World War II, yeah, we're going to talk about where those come from. So um, this comes from... A book called The Lonely Crowd, A Study of the Changing American Character, came out in 1950 by David Reisman. So here, this is around when you're seeing people start to study these things like uh, post-industrial and consumer rise of consumer mentalities and idea sets and things like that. And this book is one of the first to really go into that. And uh, Reisman uh, maintained that these are character types were a result of population levels and growths and shifts in social organizations that come with change and growth in a society like so as a society expands these are the effects it affects how society is organized and then how you you know develop your character type right sure we'll we'll get into it's better when we can contrast some so we're going to do that okay we have three okay we start with and again our society has all three. It's really about a predominance, okay? So you have the first thing comes, and it's still there, and then the second thing maybe grows out of it, and then the third, but they all still exist in different levels, okay? Okay, so we're talking about the character of a society, not characteristics of an individual. We're talking about how you develop these characteristics. Okay. Who, who do you look to for meaning and value? Okay, so we're still talking about on the individual level. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I think I was getting lost there. We're, for a we're looking cool. how the bigger machine affects your individual development of your character type. Okay. Hell yeah. But that's also a societal thing. Everyone, not everyone, but we have a whole group of, you know, how many hundreds of millions of people here experiencing the same thing. There's going to be a tendency for certain things. Sure. Sure. You sure. Know. Okay. So, um, yeah, each population has a, has a dominant character type and, uh, so the first type is high growth population. That is uh, when you're thinking like early development societies, you know, cave dwellers and things like that. Early groups, we have a high birth rate and a high death rate. We don't have things like, you know, good control or understandings of medicine yet. So the world is very chaotic. People are coming and going all the time, you know, because mm-hmm. we... We don't understand how they're born yet, maybe, and we don't understand how they die yet and how things like bacteria affect that and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have a high death rate, you have a high birth rate. And so you're you're keeping an overall population size, right? You're keeping kind of a level there. Okay. Now, 
you have in in those and they're very they're, these are our smaller groups like we were talking about earlier that um you indicate them by a low division of labor is one thing so you're seeing a lot of people doing a task from beginning to end or an understanding of a craft from beginning to end instead of that one stitch that you know 800 other people do a stitch on in these environments social change is slow and social roles are consistent throughout you know everything is consistent the power structure stays the same. You don't have a whole lot of change because you don't have a whole lot of growth. And this idea, you know, is really that growth brings change. One can also say that change may bring growth. But <laughs> in this type, we have conformity is maintained through centralized authority structure by um, routine, ritual, and religion. You know, we're talking about very traditional societies. You know, um, you don't do this because literally God will strike you dead. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, that wasn't an idiom to all people at all times. Oh, you know? yeah, sure. That, that's, a, that's a big behavioral motivator. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I will kill you if you don't. Okay, I'll get to it. With, with this group too, the dominant mode of conformity, and that's, that's another thing we're looking at. Who, who conforms you? It's behavioral and it, it's, it's limited to your family and your extended family. You have a very small group and your conformity keeps you alive. Okay, that's that's an important thing about that type of society. You go off and go by yourself, you're going to starve to death, you're going to get eaten by something, you know. Sure. You you kind of have to conform to to continue to maintain because independent existence is is very rare. That makes sense. So um and then the dominant character type in that stage that is the tradition directed self. Makes sense, right? You have everything is very stable. You have tradition. You have this established sameness, right? Yeah, it's oriented towards just trying to maintain some kind of stability in a hectic world, it sounds like. Right. And another thing is you're a homogenous group. Sure. That's very, you know, as soon as you introduce different groups together, you know, you start seeing change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the influence of each other. But um, so and, and then eventually there is a change in the birth death rate of the high growth population type. That's when you're talking about things like health maintenance develop. OK, more people are um, getting born. Your birth rate goes up and less people are dying because you're better at keeping them alive once they're born. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You might have developed better sanitation for water, better ways to grow food. You know, like I mentioned earlier, Bacteria being a very big deal in the development of society, you know, an understanding of it, a grip of it. And uh, yeah, so so your 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 population grows because you're still having as as many births and you're having less deaths until, you know, war comes. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. so now um, we get that growth and that gives us into the second stage when we get a transitional growth. Right. And that growth causes changes in your social structure. Okay, and that is what's going to change your character type. So you have increases in the accumulation of capital, production, and expansion. And a thing with growth, especially um, you know material, technological kind of things, is it's it's got that snowball effect. You know, it gets it gets faster as it goes. You know, change continues to speed up in its speed. <laughs> you know, it gets exponentially faster. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ask someone a hundred years ago to describe technological change compared to someone, you know, today who is a hundred years old compared with someone a hundred years ago who was a hundred years old, that first person would have a whole lot less to talk about in terms of technological change. 
Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's, that's how change works. It just gets, you know, bigger and bigger because you got more things acting out in farther ranges independently and accumulating more things, you know, so growth happens like that. So we have those increases in the accumulation of capital in production expansion, you know, we're going to see that division of labor increases. What also increases is the ability to have some social mobility. As as you expand, you know, as your society gets bigger, that becomes a change that occurs is because you have more rungs to climb up and down. Yeah. And there might be less of a constraint, just like there's just more variety in terms of like, oh, well, I could go marry into that family or like whatever people do. Yeah. You're just getting bombarded with growth and there's all these new opportunities and potentials and directions, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, that of course means faster social change developing. So these things, you know, they all interrelate to each other. So what comes with that is that new character type. That new, that second character type is called the inner directed self as opposed to the traditional directed self. Okay. And then the primary socializers there are like your parents, your family, your teachers, your traditional authority figures, you know, your policemen, your teachers, your firefighters, your librarian, you know what I mean? Sure. Your, uh, Mr. Rogers. I don't know. (laughs) I was just going to say Cleaver. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, that sort of thing. So we get that. And uh, those primary authority figures, like we said, parents, families, teachers, those things, they implant a generalized sense of direction that you can now apply to a wider range of possibilities. You know, growth, again, possibilities. Sure. So while the control of you is more generalized, you know, in these more traditional societies, you're being raised to be a very specific thing from as early as you can be trained. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And here we have an open opening of opportunities. And of course those, those have their limitations, but I mean, just in general Mm -hmm. growth brings more opportunity possibilities. So you internalize your uh, character building blocks and, and you keep them throughout your life in this stage, as opposed to our newer stage where, you know, we see a lot of change and fluctuation. So here there are there is change, but a lot of it's growth. And this also goes to at the time people thought that, you know, your brain developed. And by the time you were, you know, school age and stuff, you were pretty much who you were going to be. And you might, you know, your character had developed. And that's a reflection of that, mm. because, you know, now this is pre neuroplasticity, we could say. Yeah, people. I mean, gosh, it's been somewhat recent that we understand that you know the brain continues to change and grow as we continue to learn so yeah that i could see how yeah that that would be the case like i think they thought that kids were like done when they were like nine it's like okay off to the factory you go (laughs) and then um in that inner directed those uh those uh internalized uh characteristics become the person's social compass and their own internal tool of conformity you know, you uh, you internalize someone to the conformity instead of constantly reminding them to conform. You know, it gets internalized. OK, so that's your inner directed self. And uh, and that's more when you see people seeing themselves more individually as opposed to a member. Individuality also begins to bloom with this. OK, so you see the growth of people perceiving themselves more as me who is later this guy's kid or this guy's friend 
you know, it's more of a central as opposed to in those traditional, you are the member of this group that you're a part of primarily. Yeah. I want to say the term is like the locus of self or something is like, it's yeah, more internal. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Right. So we're seeing that. And then um, our third stage, which we see here, this is when we have uh, the population boom levels off some, you know, we're not in the, uh, in the baby boom here anymore. Okay. <laughs> And the population, that doesn't mean you don't still have growth, but I mean the amount of growth per. Yeah, you don't have the like, yeah. it's the same amount of exponential growth. Yeah, the family seen. size has greatly reduced. You know, people now have children later and they tend to have less children. There's, I think there's probably more chances to like control how many children you have, right? Like to understand how it works and stuff. And yeah, it's more of what you want to happen. Yes, <laughs> rather than it just happening. Totally. Yeah. I mean, unless you live in Texas. <laughs> well, um, uh, all of these topics are nuanced and yes. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so. But also, yeah, fuck that. Sorry. I just have to get that out of my system real quick before we move on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Continue on, Dave. Well, I planted the seed for you to bloom there. Um, we see here individuals having more leisure time. And we see people being around other people at a much higher rate. Privacy lessons the more people are around you know and as a result of that your contemporaries become much more important in your socialization and conformity you're looking more to you know your your own peer group and your contemporaries more than say these defined authority structures you know like parental and legal and things you know your your smaller social groups become much more important in your definition of yourself this makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't necessarily see that as much with the other two character types. What is this one called? This is called the other directed self. Oh, okay. Other directed self. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think they're, in this case, their, uh, de their uh, titles help. You know, sometimes we have some things called things that are nothing like what they are. But <laughs> yeah. Others help direct you. You know, you're directed by your you have more of a tendency to be directed by more of your peer group and things like that. Your contemporaries than your older authoritative structures. So this is almost like a return to the first type, but on like this new level of like, now that you have this individual, like you're like, I want to look to the people that are like me. You have so many more social groups now, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, it's more of a, a pushing yourself outwards in a lot more directions looking for your identity okay you know because you're playing more off of your your peer groups for these kind of things and uh you know there was a time when you know you always went to the authorities to figure out stuff you know you ask your parents and that was gospel yeah you take a test to figure out what you should do when you grow up or yeah. whatever <laughs> like they tell you yeah <laughs> what you're gonna do and who you're gonna be and then, you know, Reisman also says that that population growth also is when you also see, you know, our um, consumer economy, consumption, instead of, you know, production being the basis of uh, the economy. Okay. So do we think that this has something to do with, like, keeping up with our peer group or something? Is this, like, related somehow? Not necessarily. Um, what it is is you have a lot more things to look at to... Um, compare yourself against, correct yourself against, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, if we want to get a little neurology, um, 
what are your mirror neurons reflecting? You know, the mirror neurons are the parts in your brain that allow you to see outside things occurring and imitate them. That's how, you know, a lot of your early motor skills develop is from your mirror neurons, watching people do something and imitating it. You know, that's an element of your brain too. So you're casting a much wider net, you know, maybe before all of your, you know, your, your social statuses were just in relationship to, you know, your work and family. And each of those had one or two. And now you're looking at just boom, this explosion. And then, you know, look at the growth of that with, you know, communications. Sure. Because now, I mean, the world is so much smaller now, you know, you can, you can compare yourself with your contemporaries across the world, you know? Yeah. And the thing you're going to be comparing against is a, a distorted image that's been sort of put out there too. So it's, it's well, see, that's the, that's the downside of this. Yeah. It's not all good. Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, it's, there's always a sort of like trickster aspect to this stuff, right? Like it's, you know, it's got its good stuff and it's bad stuff. And, um, Oh yeah. Well here, when he talked about this, what he said is uh, two things that really develop out of it, and they're almost poles, you know, they're almost uh, the ends of each other. One is a higher level of empathy, which yeah, is a good thing. Empathy is a good thing. The other is a higher level of manipulation. So. Okay. Everything comes with its baggage, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. And I think that the, those two things, like, might have they sort of go hand in hand, right? Like, yeah, they have a relationship with each other for sure. You know, like we were talking earlier about the difference between empathizing with someone and, you know, cultural competency versus, you know, enough cultural understanding to screw someone over. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, oftentimes people who tend to be really empathetic uh, can be easily manipulated because of this if they're not careful or whatever. There's all kinds of interesting ways that these concepts play with each other for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're interesting things to, you know, inform yourself of. Sociologists, um, social theorists and the like aren't known as the easiest people to read. But um, the real shift, not the real, never, and nothing's ever one thing, but a big influence on sociology going from a very academic and distant thing to people going into places and affecting social change was a book called The Sociological Imagination. It was by C, the letter C, Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, Mills. He also wrote The Power Elite. And uh, he was, uh, you know, attempting to, you know, tell people this is, this is stuff, you know, it's valuable stuff to understand. And uh, it was really giving more useful ways to work with you know, dealing with social change and trying to improve people's lives rather than just observing it from a distance and making notes about it, you know? Sure, okay. You got to get in there and knee deep in the gore, man. Yeah, so like this is, like Mills wants to take this and make it like an applied science or something. Oh, he did. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, and uh, that, that was his deal. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to go back now and look at, and I'm sure, you know, sociologists are doing that. I, I haven't kept up. Um, you know, how, how power change has changed, you know, since, you know, this new century. And uh, I don't think, uh, you know, the internet, you know, that whole opening of that line of communication and more important economy was uh, saw by many people. I think you're correct about that. 
because I remember, you know, I got into getting online and stuff in the 90s, like the mid 90s. And it was, you know, still at that point, it was, you know, for, you know, nerds like me, you know, weirdos and freaks who want to talk to other weirdos and freaks or, you know, super sci-fi and book geeks. Yeah, which, I was going to say all... sci-fi writers, probably. Yeah, you know. I mean, I'm all of those. I'm fine with it. But, <laughs> you know, like the growth, I remember I was looking back through a journal in the late 90s and I was talking about, you know, the potential of this. And if we can just keep it out of the hands of these goddamn consumerists, <laughs> you know, well, I don't always win, but I did see it coming. But um, I, I never saw. And, you know, I did. I did my, um, a lot of these concepts are what I did my, um, thesis on where I took, uh, where I went to college, I got, I don't know, a few hundred and ended up to be about 5% of the college population actually, uh, pissed off the ed department and everything, but tell me more. What I was finding at that time, which is, you know, the beginning of the two thousands is you had a lot of talk about these kind of things, but at the time there wasn't a whole lot of data with it. You know, it was very conceptual. And so I, you know, by taking a lot of different uh, things into account, I made a uh, a little scale of uh, media saturation and consumerism and uh, made these little rubrics and ran them through a few hundred students. And, you know, the exploratory study, it was interesting, you know, because like I said, I'm sure now you would have a lot more research to go on. I didn't at the time. People were talking about these things, but they weren't doing the thing and talking about the thing or two different things. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so I just started trying to crunch some data on it, which also was a challenge to me because I'm a theory guy. I'm not a real math guy. So I know I needed to do the math. So I, you know, I, I think I cranked like 98 variables throughout this study. That's when, that's when you grab a helper <laughs> to help you with the calculation. Oh, I had, I had a professor on my <laughs> thesis committee that, you know, I don't think I would have survived it without him. And, you know. This guy, you know, he's one of those math. He's a chess master, like a European chess master guy. And like his analytical abilities, what he could do with numbers, you know, that's like, whoa. And I learned a lot about that end of things, you know. So that's that's kind of an idea of where we're at, according to some sociologists. Okay, hell yeah. So we, we're going to circle back around to consumerism, I think. I think we have the table <laughs> all set for it now, <laughs> right? You want to talk about advertising? Hey, what's up? It's me again, Luxa from the future. Ah, but which future? Hopefully the optimistic solar punk one. I don't know. As you just heard, Dave and I are going to be getting into talking about advertising and consumerism through the lens of sociology in just a little bit. But first, I am stoked to bring you this episode within the episode featuring Shane Thomas. As I mentioned before, you might remember Shane from the Green Mushroom Project audio grimoire series and other The Green Mushroom stuff. Like, for instance, the Astral Temple Experiment series, which you can find on the Luxacult YouTube channel. So yes, check out the show notes for links about the project and all of that. So before we dive into this episode within the episode, I wanted to share a poem written by Joy, who you can hear in episode 42 of this show, Changeling and Changing the Script, featuring another very badass person 
Aiden Walker. So if you haven't heard that one yet, definitely check it out. You can also hear Aiden in episode 12 of this show where we talk about hyper sigils and his book, Weaving Fate, and much more. And he was also kind enough to join me for an episode within an episode, which is featured in the most recent installment of the Green Mushroom Project audio grimoire series. That's number 43. That was a lot of uh, shameless self-promotion there and plugs. Uh, Let's get to some poetry instead. So the fifth and last poetry snack I'll be sharing later was written by me as a result of some automatic writing, and it's a piece I still feel pretty uncomfortable with. So this discomfort is pretty interesting to me, and this one of the reasons I've decided to read it on this show. Um, and I think sometimes discomfort, if it's the right kind, can be an indicator of places where there's like a lot of potential for growth. So yeah, we'll see. Anyway, we'll get to that later on after the rest of my chat about sociology with Dave Neal. But now, the present matter at hand, which is another bit of poetry by the very impressive Joy. Check out her mimetic project, A Culture Jammer, on Instagram. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. It's an absolute privilege to work with Joy. We always have super interesting conversations about magic and stuff, and she's quite inspirational as well. I hope you're blushing if you're listening to this, Joy. (laughs) She and I had talked recently about this concept of the void, you know, these different places where it kind of like manifests for us and in our respective work and everything. And I don't recall exactly how it came up, but I do remember telling Joy that I would love to hear some poetry written by her on the topic of the void. And I did hear it and I did love it. And now by reading it here for you, I sort of complete a loop. So yes, witness. One does not ascend skyward into love. We are pulled backwards and down into the abyss. We fall head over heels. The void beats gently, birthing rhythms into becoming, to dissolve, to coagulate, thump thump, thump thump, an endless echo that answers itself, an overture and catabasis. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Ah, thank you, Joy. Well, from the heart of the void to yours, cheers. Let's get into this mini episode with Shane Thomas. I am here once again with Shane Thomas. How's it going, Shane? Hey, good, Luxa. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good, dude. So I'm super stoked to hear some of your thoughts about consumerism and about some of the stuff that I've been talking with Dave about. So um, thank you so much for agreeing to have this little chat with me. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. And I'm also stoked to hear your conversation with Dave. So if I... uh... Uh, say something that makes me sound uninformed um, it's because I had you know <laughs> I'm doing this with you before I've had a chance to listen to that episode absolutely yes this chain uh, <laughs> has not had a chance to listen to what Davis said which I don't think there'll be a whole lot of crossover anyway because we're ca- talking about different things in this one so yeah it'll be cool awesome yeah so uh can I start off with a quote from I Ching number 39 I would love that please do awesome and that's the hexagram for obstruction 
Difficulties and obstructions throw a person back upon themselves. While the inferior person seeks to blame on others, bewailing their fate, the superior person seeks the error within themselves. And through introspection, the external obstacle becomes for them an occasion for inner enrichment and education. All right, fuck yeah. So would you mind giving us a little bit of background about your interest in this topic and sort of where you're coming from with all this? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so in my late teen years and early 20s, I was uh, like dirt poor, totally broke all the time, uh, working dead end, like minimum wage jobs with a strong interest in punk rock, which had a lot of values placed on blue collar work and, and overthrowing you know, the wealth in your society. Uh, it really resonated with me. But as I got older and uh, kind of hit what, what I would call a career instead of a job, and ended up going to school in the evening, the only program I could actually complete uh, that was any interest whatsoever to me while while doing the job that I have now, which is uh, uh, technical sales, was a business degree. And that was kind of the opposite of anything I wanted to study. Based on my youth watching things like Captain Planet, where the bad guy is literally a, uh, a businessman like pumping toxic waste into the river while counting money on the side of the road. Uh, <laughs> you know, this kind of this kind of ideas uh, stuck with me more than cartoons probably should. And, uh, you know, a lot of the music I was into was also reinforcing the idea that things should be, uh, you know, split between us a lot different than they are. So I kind of looked at that like, great, here I am, you know, <laughs> learning the devil's tricks. Uh, and, and then when I entered the program, I found that, uh, and, and this was, must've been, uh, between 2009, 2012, somewhere in there, it was post Enron. And a lot of the text had been updated, uh, to where every class had an ethical component. So the science of business administration is at least a hundred, maybe a couple hundred years old. And so they just kind of realized during that, uh, you know, real estate, crisis that uh you know half ruined the economy in 2008 uh they realized that teaching ethics for business was an important part of the program so anyone that's studying business now has these conversations with their professor and classmates uh, instead of kind of getting cut loose with all these tools and and none of the discipline i suppose or or morality to know what to do with them correctly okay okay so yeah, I can see what you're saying about having to sort of think differently about yourself going into a, a field where you maybe felt like it was so far away from the identity that you sort of had at the time. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one of the things I realized is uh, through the program that it wasn't so much a skill set like, uh, you know, knowing business. It wasn't the skill set that was the problem. It, it was the values of certain organizations and uh, so what I'd like to recommend is instead of going after a certain company or, or thinking one style of government would be superior to another and thinking about ways to kind of take down parts of society, I would recommend establishing a personal value system the way a good company would and then making decisions and goals based on your own value system you know, in order to change the world slowly and bit by bit, according to, you know, how much of the world is actually yours to try to put control over others. 
Okay. So uh, I picked an example that's close to my heart. And I think that anyone that practices magic long enough uh, comes around to this same cause. And, and that's, you know, uh, restoring the natural world. I, uh, I'm passionate about that. And I'd like to see more, you know, wild spaces again and a better balance between how we treat animals and, and the space we leave for them in the world, which is, you know, it should be most of the space to them. Uh, so let's say that my value is caring for the natural world. Next, what I would do is take that value and turn it into goals. And I'd pick something realistic instead of saying like, uh, you know, I'm going to make no one fire coal for a power plant this year. Uh, instead, I would say something like, I want to leave the environment better than I found it. And uh, one of the dangers of having a goal that's really large, like making every facility that fired coal to generate power suddenly stop is that while you're exerting your will, and as a magician, we should all be finding ways to uh, you know, enact our will or or enact a will on behalf of a greater power in the world. Um, there's just as many people with that same ability to express their will working in these organizations, and their will is to earn a living through this, uh, you know, through this system that they're working on. Uh, so you'd have a very low chance of some kind of, uh, I guess, you know, magical operation or or creating a plan that would just uh, destroy something so large when so many other people have an interest in uh, making sure it doesn't get destroyed or taken down. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. There's momentum on that other side too. It's the reason that people can't divine lottery numbers is because so many other people want to win the lottery as well. It's not like a Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> unless you've won the lottery. <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I could see that being the case. I don't, I like to try to stay away from ontological assertions, but I could see that being a possibility of that being the reason. I don't know. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And that is just my opinion. So one way I found that people can be changed is that they will change on their own willingly through role modeling and inspiration uh, Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. So back to my example of environmental values, you could go around picking up trash in public places. I found by actually doing that, uh, that some people become inspired and ask me stuff like, hey, where did you get the trash cloth? I thought about picking up garbage too. So it's nice to kind of have that conversation and, you know, normalize being part of the solution instead of, uh, I don't know, being like, scoffing at people while you're picking up garbage for hey, this could have been your litter or something instead if you give them a smile or or just you know say something nice maybe you can uh, help create more change agents yeah definitely we are social creatures and we learn from watching each other so that makes sense yeah and you know a lot of people care too it's just a matter of uh you kind of got to tone down your caring in order to get the day through but if they see other people are engaging in some kind of behavior like that. And this, this obviously goes well beyond just picking up litter at the park or something. If, for instance, Lux has started talking about magic and then I found her podcast and now we do magical shit together too. So that's pretty cool. You know, that's her walking the walk and something happening. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I definitely like what you're saying about acting within your own, the parameters of your own like ethical system and stuff and not just, having this ethical system, but really putting it into play for yourself in your own life. Yeah. And like 
when I was younger and wanted to like tear down polluting companies or whatever, uh, whatever I was thinking at the time, uh, that's, that's putting forth a lot of effort to take apart something. And, uh, for one, something that is currently socially accepted. So it's, you know, you're breaking a lot of the, uh, like the agreements amongst, and I'm not talking laws, I'm talking about just being neighborly or, or the golden rule, if you will, just, uh, a lot of a lot of the decencies that we all share in any society that's successful about respecting one another's property and uh, you know interests in in land or whatever so it's it's better i think to take action um so back to the environmental topic next thing you would want to do is uh to your homework and learn everything you can about it there's some things that are coming up on this environmental uh you know improvement that are actually still doing harm um, in their efforts to uh, be green. There's a lot of like bullshit out there and a lot of opportunists like trying to make money off of bullshit and stuff too, unfortunately, right? Yeah, yeah. And an alternative isn't the better alternative necessarily. So it's sometimes the best thing you can do is the things that you definitely know are going to help. Like maybe don't drive a quarter mile on a nice day, that sort of thing. Yeah, don't buy something if you could make it out of something you already own is a great way to go. Just to, I don't know, but yes. Yeah, and uh, for since we're kind of on the topic of capitalism, if anyone, and I'm maybe the only one, but if anyone else was fairly pro-capitalist and was like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this tidbit because it's another person that believes capitalism could still work. Uh, <laughs> so I, I doubt that's much of the audience, but um, if you're out there, maybe you like, invest in stocks for fun on the side. And if you're doing that, one thing you can do if environmentalism is your thing is to invest only in companies that are like practicing sustainability, like neutral carbon footprints and things like that, or that have, uh, you know, positive impact on like the human rights in the workplace. So these are ways that uh, signal to corporations that, um, you know, if a bunch of stockholders are going in and buying into companies that do these things, they will react by make like there come a uh, different companies will react by adopting those values in order to attract more investors. So that's that's what I mean. Like once you have your value established, you've picked that you want to help out this way. Instead of trying to blow shit up, you can put your part of like you're a cog in the system and we all are. We're all relying on one another as a society, which has actually more good than bad, if you ask me or you know, most people say it's a kind of a wash, but I think we're living better than a lot of people have had the opportunity to live. And I'd like to continue making improvements on what we're doing rather than starting from scratch. So, you know, doing things like these investments or, or uh, buying eco-friendly products are a great way to help in this specific example. And uh, I'm sure there's other ways to, you know, for whatever your value is, there's somebody else that probably gives a shit about it too and is already taking steps. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, one more thing, because when I was younger, I was really about like break it and start over. So I want to kind of speak to my younger self and maybe anyone that's listening that might kind of feel that way as well. Breaking shit is fun, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, giant social structures, maybe not so much, but I have a, you know, I like November 1st for, for the pumpkin smashing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
So like hitting the great reset button, though, doesn't guarantee that your utopia would arrive. It's actually going to guarantee that whomever has already been winning in the current system gets to kind of double down on their control since they have all the resources at the moment of collapse. It's very likely that just the new regime is going to be a little more militant than the last. That definitely does seem to be the case often in history. Not always, but you know, of, of course. But yeah, yeah, I can definitely see what you're saying there for sure, and um, I could certainly see a scenario where, where that would be the case easily. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I find that gradual steps. Well, even since you know, since our very warlike revolutionary beginning, and uh, you know, we have been uh, involved in some sort of armed conflict for most of the existence in the country, but the quality of human life for everyone, instead of just uh, white male property owners, has been improving since since the beginning. Not not as fast as many people would like, and certainly myself, but it has been stepping up in various categories of, uh, you know, disparity minimization uh, since since we got started as a nation. So. Well, I mean, the fact that we're having the kind of dialogue that we're having about it today, I think is a good sign, even though it obviously it all sucks. But it's I see what you're saying about things slowly improving. And uh, I agree that I hope that that will continue to be the case. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> there's there's reason to be nervous for sure. Um, yes, <laughs> one never knows, right? <laughs> but yes, and yeah. I think it, yeah, it really de- like this is this these topics are so nuanced, right? Like I think it really depends on exactly where we look. I think in general, it's probably safe to say, you know, like that I would agree with what with your assertion that you know it's it's in general getting better. But I think that we could definitely like find spots and say like, oh well, this has gotten a lot worse, or like, oh, this over here has gotten a fuck ton better, or you know. So I think there's a lot of nuance there, but I do agree with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I Yeah, I can definitely see what you mean. Like, there's been a lot of kind of toxic attitudes that have been emerging um, on the internet, I guess. I, yeah, I could definitely see that. I did have one more kind of like overarching point, I guess, about kind of society as a whole. And it's through the context of environmentalism, if you don't mind. We've only been aware that we're ruining the environment for about 30 to 70 years, depending on who you ask. And already, uh, slightly less than half of the people in the world seem to care about it. So that's a big, uh, big improvement over just like scientists in the earlier years and then uh, um, some early adopters. Uh, And then finally, like it's a national discussion now and probably a global discussion, but I don't uh, get out too much in the world. So uh, the fact that we're becoming aware of it and can probably, if it hasn't become too late, uh, fix the environment by uh, making changes in society over <laughs> it may, you know, over the next 30 to 50 years, I would say uh, we would see that shift, uh, which in the terms of how society has advanced since the beginning of the industrial revolution, that's like a third of the time of the industrial revolution. So that's in that scale, it's actually moving right along. Uh, so long as we don't backslide terribly. <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. I really appreciate your optimism, dude. Fuck yeah. It's, I think it's easy with, and like I am horrified uh, looking at the environmental issue in particular and, and some human rights issues are just appalling as well, some people's reactions. But for the most part, I think that society is becoming aware enough to be able to make a difference, especially, sadly, especially as the kind of 
negative consequences start to roll out, I think it's going to galvanize those already interested in these kind of issues and, you know, kind of continuous forward. But uh, the value, the value system is really key. It's, it's so easy to kind of despair about the world in general and just like look out and see only chaos, right? But once you apply a system to it, the same in magic, right? The first there's chaos, then you apply a system and you create order and manifest your will through following that pattern. In that very same way, once you've established a value system for things that matter to you in your life and kind of life objectives you want to attain while getting through your day to day, that value system kind of guides a lot of what you ought to do to make the world a better place in your point of view. So it's, uh, I look at that as like the creative form of, of tackling a problem instead of the destructive form. Hell yeah. So do you have any advice in particular about people, you know, when people are saying like, okay, well, how can I, like, how do I go about coming up with my value system? Like how, what advice would you give to people um, in terms of like attacking this particular problem or endeavor? Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I think the best way to determine your values is to just really think about things that move you, that you're passionate about and that you care about. It's it's easy to chase after the American dream, but those things of materialism, like the house and the car, certain careers, that actually isn't what you want. Those are the things that represent the feelings that you want. So if you can take it just to that feeling, that's literally a value. So it's, it's our experiences, like those positive experiences. That's where you look for, for your core values. For instance, the, where I got exposure to the concept of core values was before I did technical sales for industrial stuff like I do now. Uh, I worked for Whole Foods Market uh, before Amazon bought them, and Whole Foods was big about sharing their core values with the team and empowering people on the team to make decisions through the lens of those core values. And I can't remember all six of them, but one of them was to satisfy and delight customers. So you imagine just, just from the sound of the value, you can see the emotion in the other person that you're trying to evoke with your interaction through them. So that to me was kind of how I, uh, you know, picked my values. It's just when I'm, you know, when I'm out in the world in nature, just, I feel so like, like tied back into something that I have to unplug from and not necessarily by choice. So I feel like reconnected and, and that, that's why it became a value for me is just I don't know, like that, you know, like when you show up at your family reunion or something, if it's a good thing for you. (laughs) 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 So that's, that's how I choose my values. Uh, Things that I'm just passionate about or or couldn't walk away from or just feel moved to be a part of. And, um, and I, I know we've talked about this in slightly other contexts, but another really great way to determine your values is to try to just deny everything as part of your value system. Like just shut down all the stuff, like don't do stuff. We talked about this in the context of uh, to-do lists of, cause I'm impressed by how much stuff you get done. So uh, I was saying that one of my techniques was to uh, just try to list things out and ignore them and put them on staler and staler lists, like further down the back burner 
and, and never really get to them all because uh, the things that jump out and take priority, those are your passions. So that's how you find what you value. Yeah, I know that's dope. And actually, that actually was a really helpful exercise for me to do, even though even hearing you describe it again, still stressed me out. <laughs> the thought of all those things never <laughs> getting crossed off the list. You're never going to be able to cross all the fucking things off the list. though. Look, so that's if, not possible. <laughs> so if, yes. Yeah. And once you decide what can fuck off, it's really easy to see what's more important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about this. Is there anything else on this topic that we haven't hit yet? Oh, um, I just want to say, I, I know I kind of already mentioned it, but business people really aren't evil. If anything, they can be self-absorbed or like so oriented toward a certain goal that it's easy to ignore things that other people would consider obvious uh, human decencies or whatever, but you can say that about several professions. And there are a lot of uh, like ethical conversations that people are having in business school now. And I went to a seminar with 130 other people on the sales force. And one of the guest speakers was an ethics professor. So these are conversations that are happening. Um, the corporate world is an all evil and many of them actually don't even want to be. So, you know, once we uh, use our dollars to show them what our values are. And that's another part of it, right? When you determine what you value, your spending is going to go there. And when your spending goes there, corporate interest, you know, just blossoms. Like your phone eavesdrops on you all the time to figure out what you want to buy. So it's eavesdropping on you, like talking through things in your value system, then companies are going to try to direct their efforts toward your values. Uh, I'm so stressed out, but you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Like this was definitely like one part, like conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat <laughs> conversation. So my bad. <laughs> no, no, this is perfect actually. <laughs> so that's also part of my strategy is always assume the best in people. So I assume that they're surveilling me for my own good. <laughs> Oh, fucking A, man. Well, as I said, I love your optimism. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the soapbox. Thanks a lot for letting me come on and uh, and say a couple things. Of course. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. There's one more thing that I was hoping that you would chat with me about, and this is your Pokemancy divination system. So Pokemancy is something that it's a thing. People do it. Um, this isn't, you know, like something that you, you know, came up with on your own, but this is you've come up with your own system for the way that you do it. So I'm super excited to hear about that. Yeah. So a little background outside of my uh, my working life is that when it was in my mid to late teens, I had a kid brother who was uh, just old enough to go see the Pokemon movies and play the Pokemon trading card game. And so a buddy of mine and I enjoyed Pokemon a couple years older than we probably should have. No one else was into it, but we had our golden ticket in my kid brother. So okay. I have been playing Pokemon with him since like 2002 or 2003 when the, the game was very young. And then I have a 14 year old who was obsessed with Pokemon. So that rekindled the card collection and we have a shoebox with like thousands of these things. And I played it for several years with him until he graduated to Magic the Gathering, 
which is simply too complicated for me to enjoy. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's your jam, but I, I need it a little simpler than that. <laughs> oh, it's actually, it's not really something that I play much of, but I do have some of the cards. So I thought it would be cool to do a divination system. Yeah, it's a little, it nice. is complicated. It just, it doesn't hold my interest the way it does for some of my friends. I understand it's cool and fun. The art is fucking amazing. I love that about it for sure. Yeah. And like my, my kid, he, the strategy he puts into this and he schools me at chess too. There's already, he's already lapping me on several things. He's a bright <laughs> kid. The strategy he puts into the magic game is just, it's well beyond any, you know, I, the Pokemon is fun. It's, it's simple. Like as soon as a kid can read, they can pick it up. So as an adult and you've taken like five or 15 years off in between whatever kid has interest, you end up, uh, you know, you don't want it too complicated. So it's, uh, and for symbolism reasons, it's, uh, you know, for the purposes of divination, it's easy symbolism. You don't have to think too hard about it. It's very clear as I'll, I'll list off some examples. Um, so the history is that I've been playing Pokemon despite being too old for it for like over 20 years now. I just want to say real quick, I don't think there's an age limit on playing Pokemon. Um, my father loves to play Pokemon Go and takes very, very long walks to catch Pokemon, which I think is a good thing oh, for yeah. him to do. Good for him. Well, when he reaches <laughs> level 38, tell him I'm ready for him. <laughs> right. I, I had to set that video game down for my spiritual practice, but I uh, I love that game too. <laughs> I understand. I actually heard from a lister, shout out, Anna, that they hurt themselves playing Pokemon Go. Um, so that's a very unfortunate. Please be safe out there if you're messing around with that. Hey, good God, people. Do not Pokemon Go and drive. <laughs> Don't do it. So, yeah, I, I heard somewhere, I read an article that the original tarot cards uh, were based on a French playing cards. They're, they were just yes. you know, playing for like rummy or whatever. And so I got to thinking... If someone else just looked at that symbolism and it meant something to them, then any, and I, you know, I was kicking around Faith Blind Council podcast and Discord server and, and the Green Mushroom area kind of talking about it and asking about it. And uh, yeah, it turns out that just like the symbolism is for you. And I verified that by going through my thousands of Pokemon cards. I say mine, but they're really my kids and mine. And uh, I, I went through, I don't know, a couple thousand, pulled out 82 cards that had just really easily recognizable symbolism for me. And uh, there you have it. So I either got my symbolism from the type of energy. So there's the energy cards in there or uh, the actions, the trainer cards. Some of them were really clearly speaking to me. Uh, and, and it's an action too. So that's nice because a lot of your uh, divination layouts are, are like positions on the board. So if you have an action or like the energy moving through it, it makes it really easy to read. Okay. Fuck yeah. Do you have your Pokemon divination deck on you right now? <laughs> I do. I was hoping you'd ask. Could I press you for a reading? For sure, yeah. Okay, fantastic. It doesn't have to be like a in-depth one or anything like that, but I would love to have a taste. Cool. Yeah, we'll see if I can go fast. This always takes me... I'm not like the most experienced diviner. I've only been doing it for a couple of years, and I've only done like 10 readings with the Pokemon cards. So uh, you'll forgive me if my fast reading isn't up to snuff, but I'm That I'm is okay. Well, this is a podcast. <laughs> I can edit out any pauses, and this will be great practice for you. So fuck yeah. Sweet. And you already promised to make it so I don't sound dumb. So, 
as much as I can. I try for myself, so it's the least I can do for my guests <laughs> as well. Sweet. No, you'll, you'll, this will be good. Don't worry. Okay, so cool. my question is, how do I move forward in a productive way with the work I'm currently trying to complete? Cool. I just got to jot this down. Writing it down is a big part of it. So Yes, writing things down is um, important. Okay. I, uh, I got the spread from another Green Mushroom Council member, so this will be a cool, uh, cool okay, one. Okay, very um, cool. You got to so help me... You, you got to help me with the pronunciation, though. Um, they had a whole thing running people through how to say it, but I wasn't paying that much attention in the sh in the forum that day. So forgive me and uh, help me here because, you know, I suck at pronouncing people's names. Tahirion? How I know I'm saying it wrong. I probably will say it wrong, too. But yes, shout out to you, dude. How's it going? Hopefully we're <laughs> Sorry not about fucking butchering your name, your name. too horribly. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an awesome spread. It's First step, first misstep, second step, second misstep, and then ideal outcome. Okay. Cool. So it's a five card draw. So we're just going to freewheel this together. Your first step, I pulled the Hitmonchan card, and uh, one of his attacks is dodge. And uh, so I'm looking at that thinking uh, your first step is you're going to have to like get out of the way of something. And when I look at your first misstep, it's Ponyta, and his move is minor errand running. So that means you have to dodge doing piddly bullshit in order to focus on your task. Okay, okay. Cool. Um, then your second move, it's this little guy, Clink. He looks like two gears with faces on it. Kind of looks like he's supposed to be turning together, but then at the moment, it looks surprised, uh, like they're going the wrong direction from each other. And Clink's move is disorderly flip. So something's going <laughs> to, I, I I don't know, you have to like mix it up or, you know, turn over the apple cart. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever your project is, maybe there's several aspects of it and you've got to you know, think about it in a different way. Ooh. And your second misstep is darkness energy. So don't get grumpy about it. And your ideal outcome, I pulled teammates. And it's a picture of two schoolgirls holding pokeballs. So maybe you need to pull in some help. Okay, fuck yeah. This is very cool. I was just writing it down. Cool. Uh, what do you think? Did, uh, did that resonate with you? or? Absolutely. Dodge piddly bullshit and focus on the task. Uh, shake it up. Fuck things up. And don't get grumpy about it. And the ideal outcome oh, yeah. is uh, some kind of collaborative thing. So fuck yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear how it all shakes out for you. All right, I will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Shane, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Any last thoughts before I let you go? Well, actually, yeah, I um, one of my uh, at a recent retreat I was at, one of the things that I decided I could do without was uh, making assumptions that I knew things. So uh, maybe I'll leave the the listener with uh, the question. Uh, are there things that you're making assumptions about that uh, aren't really serving you? All right. Fuck yeah. Good cool. question. Thank you so much. Thank you for the Pokemon C reading. Much appreciated. <laughs> and thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you uh, giving me the soapbox and letting me share those opinions. So it was really cool. And uh, I look forward to hearing the rest of the episode. Hell yeah. Thank you. And I also want to say thank you so much for all your hard work on the green mushroom stuff and um, yeah, all, all of it. So thank you. 
Oh yeah, it, that's a real joy. I'm glad to be there. Thanks for having such a place where I can uh, take part. All right, well, fuck yeah. Well, before we uh, disappear each other's assholes here, I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fuck yeah. Thanks so much to Shane for being willing to share his thoughts. As I said, I appreciate his optimism. Sometimes I think about the idea of morale, right? And I do feel that its importance really can't be underestimated. I'm pretty confident I've probably said this before on this show. Um, I talk a little bit about the history of the Tarot in episode 34, The Devil and the Magician, with Matt from Spearfire Tarot. That's a good one, you won't want to miss it. Um, so yeah, I know that Shane had brought that up about like how it was a game and everything. And so yeah, that is something that we touch on there as well. Alright, well, I'm going to be back after the rest of the interview to talk a little bit about an eclipse ritual. Uh, we're going to do the existentialist cuddle puddle as promised. And I'm going to read you a really weird poem that I wrote, uh, which is pretty creepy. So that will be the fifth and last poetry snack on this uh, day of fives. Hope you enjoy. Let's get back into it. Now here is the rest of my chat with Dave Neal. I was wondering, you know, to what extent do you think it's a, by design that we have these like buying cycles associated with the major U.S. holidays or the mainstream U.S. holidays? Um, I wouldn't limit it to U.S. holidays. We have imposed buying cycles on every damn thing you can imagine, but sure. Okay, sure. so tell me more about that. Then. <laughs> That's a very good example of materialism, you know, taking over like you were talking about materialism and, um, you know, I mean, Valentine's Day is probably the easiest uh, one to pull out of them, you know, as far as being a, you know, a newer design thing too. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it, it basically came out of greeting card companies. Yeah. Right? And actually I'm just noticing something about it. That's kind of hilarious and ironic, right? Like there's this age old saying about like, you can fucking basically buy anything, but you can't buy love. And so it is kind of funny that the like, holiday that's purportedly is supposed to celebrate love is just all about buying this fucking bullshit <laughs> like, right well the material answer is you know who needs love when you got money <laughs> it, it's not a strong it's not a strong angle to have i don't think there. so not from like yeah I, I feel like uh anybody that studied psychology or anything like that would be like no we're social animals like you can't you could live in a cave full of gold and go crazy <laughs> right like oh sure i mean i i probably pretty antisocial and i understand that i'm a very social animal myself you know yeah i think i think covid helped us introverts understand what extroverts go through when they're by themselves yes my heart goes out to all the extroverts out there if there are any listening <laughs> i know this is like all the talking i have to do for the month you know? <laughs> so these buying cycles like you you said that these were something that you could be identified as being attached to a lot of different things. Like, where else do you think we see this? Oh, well, this whole thing is based on applying values to material goods. Um, you can read the books of advertising executives from the 50s and 60s, and they'll tell you that. That is, that is the goal, is associating value and emotion and meaning with this thing that we made 800 million of and we got to 
fucking get some money out of this. Yeah, totally. Okay. Okay, So like, there's this idea of like supply and demand, and there's like this kind of feedback loop that exists between them. And so here we have advertising stepping in to try to like monkey around with the demand side of that equation. Oh, sure. It's just like, you know, look at look at everything has a market now, you know, all kinds of parallel uh, marketing and advertising and products and merch and stuff. And you know, I'm not saying necessarily it's a good or a bad thing, but, you know, you have this this whole tie-in of rounding out your reality with something, you know? Yeah. And so, like, the sort of original idea of, like, advertising was or, – or of, like, doing these things was, like, okay, we're going to make a product that fulfills a demand. Like, people really want to drink a yellow soda, so we're going to make a yellow soda for them to drink. Now, instead, we're going to say – we're, we decided to make this yellow soda. Now we need to, like, make people want it, right? Well, we ended up with all this yellow soda. What are we going <laughs> to yeah. Oops, all yellow soda. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, um, for some reason, this whole conversation reminds me of uh, Highway 61 by Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, here's an interesting thing. Let's talk about this in relation to advertising. You know, you can look at advertising. That's something you want to see for yourself. Look at the values. Um, you can do, you know, what they call content analysis, where you, you know, you study these ads and you see what they show you because you, you know, you're getting broad generalizations. The only specific people usually in advertising are celebrities or whoever a spokesperson is. You know, everyone else is is a general type of person. You know, you have the generalized types. So. Um, there was a researcher, uh, a content analysis guy. I'll give you like a really popular content analysis book. Deadly Persuasion came out in 1999 with Jean Kilborn. And she looked at advertising and how it, how it looked at women, what, you know, it's, it's values towards women. And, you know, that was, that was a very powerful uh, book on showing, you know, how advertising, you know, projects women. I'm curious about the title of the book. Is this about the relationship between like people who read a lot of like fashion magazines and like eating disorders and stuff like that? Eating disorders. Some she her big thing was with addiction. Okay, that she she argued that advertising influences addiction in women. Interesting, and that ties into eating disorders because I mean, you know, when I was a kid, the mom's drug of choice was diet pills. You know, when I was coming up, that's, you know, you, those prescription diet pills, they were speed, you know. Oh, yeah. You figure that out by 10th grade, don't you? Yeah. Well, now you just get Adderall. Everybody takes that now. But yes. Exactly. You know, they they just about sell that everywhere openly, depending on what corner you shop at. <laughs> so um, this dude, um, Michael Shudson, he looked at a bunch of ads and he said they had a framework. See, a really big thing with, with if you're looking at ads for content, the like most glaringly obvious stuff you want to look at is Soviet realist art. It's so in your face, right? Okay. You know, you know the big workers unite, all that stuff? Yeah, like the giant like dude standing yeah, yeah. over the like The Soviet realist. Yeah, okay. It's heavy symbology, sure. literally. Hammers. Yeah, heavy. and like stark like colors, like a lot of contrast and like, yeah, sharp lines. Totally. Now, this guy said that reality put forth a conceptualization that he called capitalist realism. So he's playing off socialist realism. And he said that it has these qualities, these ads, you know, this is this is the message of social realism. Reality should be simplified and typified to communicate effectively to the masses. OK, that's 
that's again, like I was talking about types of people, right? Mm -hmm. You can't get too specific when you're dealing in the hundreds of millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to cast a broad net to catch more fish. Right. The work should picture life worth emulating an ideal to get to. So like, don't show the person's gross, dirty feet or their dirty laundry basket. Only show their nice, clean kitchen in the commercial. Yes. Or <laughs> you show what's the cure to that awful. Sure. Dirty. Oh, yeah, yeah. You had a sad we gotta fix a problem. problem with your dirty laundry, but here comes this magic solution to save you from it. Right. The third is reality is shown as progress toward the future. Again, when we talked about the elements of consumerism, we talked about a tendency towards the new, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Social struggles are shown optimistically. Mm. Yeah, a lot of commercials have a little narrative structure like, oh, you know, it's a, maybe a struggling mom and like one of the kids like spills the juice and it's like, oh, you know, but then in the end of it, everybody's happy because like now we have this new juice that you can't spill it because it's magic. Right. Or whatever the fuck the, the product is. doesn't have to worry about emotion, emotionally <laughs> regulating herself. Like, we, yeah, we have a, a solution to this, this conflict right, right. that might possibly arise in your life. My brother and I have talked about this before, and I can't remember if it was on this show or on Ad Hoc History, but when you watch a lot of these things, what they're actually selling you, and you you did mention this earlier, is like they're selling you on a feeling, on like a vibe. Like, they're you yeah. know, they show this, you know, beautiful woman in this car and this guy, next, whatever is, you know, happening. It's like they're not actually sh trying to sell you the car. They're trying to sell you the experience that they're showing yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, you're selling, you're, you're selling, uh, yeah, values and ideas and the things you want, mm -hmm. you know. Suddenly, everything you want, and it'll only cost everything you've got. <laughs> and $5 extra. <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> exactly. Isn't there always? Don't sell bastards. me piss and tell me it's yellow soda, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but I got all this piss I gotta move. <laughs> but I've just made all this piss and what, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> Okay, um, and then our last one of the, the, the realist concepts here, the capitalist realism. The focus should be on contemporary life and create pleasing images of new social phenomena. This endorses new features of society and aids the masses in assimilating them. Okay, yeah, so this is at the end of the commercial when like all these happy friends are celebrating whatever thing. Right, yeah, yeah, uh, everything gets solved in 30 seconds. Maybe 15 on YouTube. Who knows? Sure. <laughs> or, or on TikTok. It could be even less. I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I can't. I can't even talk. <laughs> you don't take the talk. <laughs> I can't take the talk. I, my talk's on TikTok. And this, that just turned into a Wallace Stevens poem, didn't it? <laughs> I took it a talk and a ticket. Uh, all right. Before we get too lost in the weeds here. A big thing, if, if you want to, um, like, the biggest complete positive relationship to being affected by consumerism is your level of media saturation, okay? That's just the positive relationship. So if you want to decrease how much the media affects you and advertising and all of that stuff, you've got to decrease your media saturation. You know, you can do that in a whole host of ways. If, if you want this stuff to be less in your head, you got to expose yourself to it less. Yeah, that's a great fucking simple thing that people can try to do. Expose yourself to less fucking advertisements, less media. And I think that everybody would like that, right? So, okay, before we get off of the topic of advertising, I just want to 
get your take on a couple of, you know, we've been talking about technology as well. And so what do you, how do you feel about this idea of seeding people's dreams with advertisements? Or there's another one that I saw recently where people have proposed using like a phone's camera to track your eye movement to make sure that you're actually watching the ads (laughs) before you get the like reward for the game or whatever the fuck it is that you're playing that the advertisement is for. What do I think of it? Well, I think it's a fine concept, being as I was part of the uh, pilot group. And uh, every time I close my eyes now, I see the uh, the right things that I need to buy. <laughs> no, it's, you know, they the advertiser's goal is to, you know, just equate what they're selling with anything they can. What surprises me is that people would willingly subject themselves to it. Sure. Well, I mean, people that have grown up in a situation like they don't understand that it's like gross or bad, possibly. Right. Like if, if that's all right, you know. Right. These people are not your friends. Sure. <laughs> well, and I think maybe cause this is an occult show. Maybe we should touch on this idea, too, that like you did mention a few minutes ago that the third thing was about. Well, actually, all three of the, the things that you mentioned in this like advertising theory it is about like shaping reality. It's about like using your message, you know, your whatever it is to like reform the way that somebody else sees reality. It's a, it's a method of persuasion, Mm -hmm. right? And there is billions of dollars being thrown at it. So it has to have some success, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's no doubt. It's gotta be incredibly successful, right? Like it's, I looked up what, what do you think the U S spent on advertising in 2021? It was actually a, a decrease from 2020. Ballpark. Give me, give me a guess. A billion dollars. I have no idea. <laughs> Three hundred and ninety-six billion. Holy shit! <laughs> online advertising by the two major, two of the major online people. I'm trying to stay clear of names. That was a billion dollars. Online U.S. advertising by two companies for their media stuff. So, like, I don't know. There's this kind of concept that like reality is nothing more than a war of ideas. Right. And so here we have our fucking, you know, these are the people that are like doing this war against us in some ways. Right. Like, I don't know. It's interesting to think about it that way. Well, I mean, yeah, but in in a war, there's often some very personal things and this isn't personal. They just want your money. Sure. (laughs) They don't give a shit, you know, about anything else. I don't know. I mean, I think that there is often a lot of personal things in war, but I mean, cynically, a lot of times we could say that, like, if you just sort of removed all of that stuff from the equation, you could still say that it's about resources, too. I don't know. Oh, sure. And, you know, I'm not necessarily, you know, trying to be anti-commerce or anti-trade. I mean, it's central. I mean, the earliest, you know, interactions between societies that weren't warring were based on trade. This is something that, like, humans do do right like and i love cool shit yeah, absolutely right yeah so we're not trying to say that like i think that what the what's gone wrong with it is just like the sort of distorted and i think we hit on this last time too you know it's just really how you're doing it you know mm-hmm. it's just you, you don't know you're in balance when you don't know there's other ways to go you know what i mean sure sure like there's this sort of like natural system that seems to develop all over the place like this idea of doing commerce like there's these really distorting influences on it like with this like fiat currency with like psychological Mm. tools used for advertising like you know just the dynamic changes that have like really off 
made it like way off balance or something. I don't know if that's the right way to, to state it. I'm not an economist or whatever, but like, does that make sense what I'm saying? Oh, totally. Okay, cool. Yeah. And uh, God, so many things are just about how you're doing it. Sure. You know, I, I know I have friends who are small business owners and, you know, they advertise, they market. When I worked in mental health, I used to have to work conferences or go into companies and, and sell our stuff. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's, you know, Jesus, when's enough? You know, how, how much control do you need over somebody? How do you need to fucking invade people's dreams and track their fucking eyeballs and shit? Like, maybe you should chill out. <laughs> like, I don't know. I know. I think I've said that before. Like last time we have the most advanced surveillance state in the world and we use it to sell you shit you don't need. I mean, that's almost better than whatever alternative I could imagine, though, to be well, honest. Well, you know, what you got to keep in mind, what you got to keep in mind is technology is neutral. Absolutely. And if the wrong people get into power, all that data that's just about your buying trends is going to be about something else real, real soon. Yeah. So, you know. Keep these bastards balanced. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I find with the, the two-party system, you have to do like the U.S. did during the Iran-Iraq war. Arm both sides. If you're ever just given two options, refuse them both. Every once in a while, weird things that are really cool happen. I don't know if you know, it was like right around World War One or maybe after that in Congress, they tried to pass... A law that if you voted for war, you were going or like sending your kid. <laughs> of course, like nobody voted for it, but that's pretty cool, isn't it? See, that's that's what I'm like. Put your money where your mouth is. You want to fight, go fight it. You know what, Dave, dude? Like that shit used to sort of be expected in a lot of societies. Like in the fucking oh, Middle Ages and shit. Like the king, like that was part of the fucking no, like that whole not that this was like they were the ones causing all the wars anyway the stupid nobles but they were the ones expected yeah. to fight them too even though they ended up fucking over all the other people too so it wasn't great back then either <laughs> but i'm just hey, saying there's a lot to be said as far as you know battling there's a lot to be said for a leader who leads from the front sure it it, it also says interesting things about the society as well so, sure yeah i'm all for you know Lead from the front like Hannibal. Just come with giant elephants from the back door and like, here I am, bitches. <laughs> you know, if you got to go to war, bring some elephants. Sure. I mean, elephants are dope, but they do have their downsides. They're not really good in the uh, more Arctic uh, mountainous climates, I hear. They can startle, too. and <laughs> But whatever. Oh, We're not would, here to talk about to military be... history. <laughs> That's another That's show. That's another show. <laughs> Okay, so do you want to talk a little bit about Nietzsche? Like, do we have time or like? I don't know. Um, there, there, there's, there's some interesting things there. I don't want to make your show go for three days. No, okay, that's totally cool. I mean, yeah, whatever, whatever works, man. This. If you ever want to get together and put Camus and Nietzsche in a ring together, got some gloves on them, though. I don't know. I think that they would just end up making out with each other, and I would totally be there for it. Well, Camus would end up dead because. You know, <laughs> I don't know. He liked to live fast. He, li you know, I think we don't he was a fan of Nietzsche, though. I think he would have been like, oh, oh he Nietzsche, I love yeah. your work. And the, they like would have started talking and then they would have fallen in love and it would have been beautiful. That's the story I'm writing. <laughs> That's my slash fiction. We need, a, we need a, a nice swell of strings. <laughs> yeah. So I think Wagner would be really fitting. Absolutely. Though, so uh, send your... Uh, <laughs> Send your a Camus uh, Nietzsche slash fiction to lexicultpod at gmail.com. <laughs>
I think we might have the start of a graphic novel. (laughs) All right. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me here today. Do you have any like last thoughts before I uh, let you go here or anything like that? You know, possibly. I'll I'll give you, um, do you ever hear the story about when uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg met William Carlos Williams? I don't believe so. Okay. Well, they sought him down one night, like in the middle of the night. Okay. So they, they, you said they obviously woke him. So like Ginsburg and Kerouac were like chilling and they saw uh, Williams and they were like, hey, that's Williams. No, they hunted down where he lived. Oh shit. Okay. Rude. <laughs> he showed up at his house in the middle of the night like this. <laughs> You know, and, and, you know, he comes and they fanboy out on him, you know. and Also rude, right? They, <laughs> but yes. Right. They, they asked if they could talk to him and everything. And he's finally, he's coming. Okay. And, and uh, I think it was Ginsburg I heard tell the story. He said, uh, he sat down in his office and uh, he said, what do you want to know? And they said, do you have any, you know, advice for young writers? Something, you know, something that we can use and everything. And he just looked out the window for a while and watched the rain and said, there's a lot of bastards out there. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when Carlos Williams tells you there's a lot of bastards out there, by God, you can take it to the bank. Absolutely. I don't know. We were just talking about bastards. So, you know. There's more than one of them. Absolutely. Yes, they abound. The world's chock full See, of See, if you put them in a room and make them fight to the death and then kill the winner, you've solved the problem. Ah, but I don't know. To what extent, Dave, are these systems like self-organizing? Will that leave a bastard vacuum which somebody is inevitable to step into? Yeah, but see, that's that's when you take the call. I'm not a sociologist, so I mean... I don't uh, know. <laughs> no, you know, that's, that's the thing is uh, with any system is once it's beyond a person... It doesn't matter if you get rid of the person, the thing's still there, especially with, you know, bureaucratic organization. Power lies in the office, not the person. So sure. you can kill people all day long as long as the office is still there. Yeah. And I guess that's sort of like the aim of bureaucracy itself, right, is to for the purpose of civility, I guess, to have that be the case. So, yeah. A lot of the purpose of bureaucracy is to justify its own existence. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's its, sec- but that's its secondary that. purpose is to continue to exist. <laughs> yes. At least at a surface level and keep up appearances. <laughs> All right. Well, fuck yeah, dude. Do you have any questions for me? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I just thought I'd, I'd see, but no, I don't. Okay. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah, it's always a blast to talk to you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been super interesting and... Hopefully it's useful. I think so. Yeah, I think it's good to have a context for this stuff. And I think that from what you've said today, like we can definitely see how there's a lot of similarities with like this advertising theory and a lot of other shit and some other like more occulty concepts like something like hyper sigil adjacent and stuff like that. So lots to think about there. I was just thinking when, um, you know, I was reviewing this stuff, I wish when I was doing this work, I had any kind of understanding of egregores. I mean, this is just... Sure. That's what, you know, you can look at as keeping a lot of these things together. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of hypersigils and advertising and shit, I know Grant Morrison has a, some interesting things to say on this topic as well. So that's a place that people could check out. There's so much cool stuff out there on people who have uh, devoted a lot of time to studying these bastards. Absolutely. Well, yeah, fuck yeah. All right, Dave. Well, always a pleasure. I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime. Anytime. All right. Fuck yeah, dude. Thanks.
All right, fuck yeah. Thanks so much to Dave Neal. Always a pleasure. I appreciate him being willing to provide us with all that info and context. Thanks also to Shane Thomas for joining me and to Joy for sharing her work for this episode. Most of all, thank you for listening. I'm stoked to share a creepy poem that I wrote and talk a bit about a ritual that I ran during the recent eclipse here in a few minutes. But first, I want to remind you about all the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We've got Administrism, Ad Hoc History, Faithline Council, Grognostics, Primordia, Unearthing Paranormalcy, Smuts Up, and XV Planus. Shout out to Flood. I'm super stoked to be a guest on XV Planus soon to talk about the Green Mushroom and some other stuff that I've been working on. Big thanks to him for the invite. I'll also be joining Allie Words for a conversation on their new show, Last Unrifled Yaw. Really stoked about that. And you can hear my conversation with Allie about the many cool projects they've been working on, which are very experimental and interesting. And that will be coming out in the next few weeks. It's really fascinating stuff, so don't miss it. I'm very much looking forward to conducting the first iteration of the Green Mushroom Project 23 Bibliomancy Experiment tonight, May 23rd. Uh, this year of our Lord Satan 2022. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Maybe I'll cut that out. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on this show, we'll be assembling a small body of text over time, which will be arrived at via bibliomancy and sortilage. It's going to be like a fun opportunity for us nerds to play with books and dice. Always a pleasure doing that. After we've come up with the first passage, we plan to interpret it and see where it leads us, as well as talking about our run-ins with the number 23. I'm so pleased to be able to do these types of fun, magical experiments with folks. So thank you so much to everybody who is participating in the Green Mushroom Project, no matter what that looks like for you in your practice. If you're interested in getting involved, check out the show notes for some links about it. And you can also follow the project on Instagram at hyphosigil. All right, so if you're into the show and you would like to support it, word of mouth is really huge. You can tell your friends and family about it, go to the graveyard and pass the message along to the dead. You tell your barista, your masseuse, your au pair. Um, you can post about it on social media. If you'd like to help me defray the cost of production, etc., please consider giving on Patreon. There are no tiers or levels or whatever, so give as you will. And if you decide to join, you can take a bibliomancy break with me. Perhaps you want to contribute, but you aren't into the whole Patreon thing. You can also do one-time donations at buymeacoffee slash luxacultpod. I'm sort of high-strung enough as it is, so I can't really have coffee per se, but I will certainly put the money to good use otherwise. And to everybody who is already supporting on Patreon and everything, I just want to say thank you so much. It really means a lot, and your contributions make this show possible, so thank you. Okay, a quick few thoughts here. If there's one thing that I really hope you'll take away from listening to my conversation with Dave earlier, it's this idea of being an active observer. It came up here today in the context of advertising, but I think it's an important thing for many approaches to life. Being an active observer can help protect you against manipulation. It can help you notice patterns. It's adjacent to situational awareness, all good stuff. When it comes to advertising and what I'm exposed to, I try to, you know, minimize my contact with the stuff, as we mentioned earlier, you know, decrease your media saturation. But that's only possible to a certain extent, right? Um, I don't want to be completely cut off from the rest of the world, right? So I always try to ask questions about what I see or hear or whatever, instead of just accepting it. I don't know, maybe that's one thing that's meant by the bumper sticker phrase, question authority. I don't know, question everything. 
Anyway, I would encourage people to consider doing the following when you're interacting with advertising or other communications of that matter. Do some content analysis. Instead of just watching whatever story is being told unfold before your eyes, ask what's happening below the surface. Like what assumptions are present? What assertions are actually being made? What type of motivating factor like love or social status or empathy is being used as like a lever to try to persuade you? The assertions that you're being presented with, are they valid? And once you begin doing this, you might find yourself laughing at things which are not necessarily intended to have a humorous effect simply because of how fucking absurd they are. Absurdity is actually a really important thing. Dave and I talked about this in the past, and if you can't laugh, you might you might just fucking cry. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. They're both important. But life is difficult in general. I'll share a passage now from a man who definitely lived a pretty difficult, tortured life, the very misunderstood king of salt, Frederick Nietzsche. We'll then cuddle up with Albert Camus, who wants to share a passage from Nietzsche with you as well. As I mentioned earlier, you can send your thoughts, questions, suggestions, arcane revelations, or esoteric understandings to lexicultpod at gmail.com, now also accepting Nietzsche Camus slash fic, but only if it's filthy, folks. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I should save that talk for smuts up. All right, allow me to reinstate my thin veneer of decorum while we sample some philosophical thought. This is from a passage on those who are sublime from Thus Spoke Zarathustra by Nietzsche. But just for the hero, the beautiful is the most difficult thing. No violent will can attain the beautiful by exertion. A little more, a little less, precisely this counts for much here. This matters most here. To stand with relaxed muscles and unharnessed will, that is the most difficult for all of you who are sublime. When power becomes gracious and ascends into the visible, such a descent I call beauty. And there is nobody from whom I want beauty as much as from you who are powerful. Let your kindness be your final self-conquest. Of all evil, I deem you capable. Therefore, I want the good from you. Verily, I have often laughed at the weaklings who thought themselves good because they had no claws. You shall strive after the virtue of the column. It grows more and more beautiful and gentle, but internally harder and more enduring as it ascends. Indeed, you that are sublime shall yet become beautiful one day, and hold up a mirror to your own beauty. Then your soul will shudder with godlike desires, and there will be adoration even in your vanity. Okay, okay. <laughs> so now moving on to Camus, who has some commentary on Nietzsche's whole kind of aesthetic, I guess. This is from The Myth of Sisyphus. Having started from an anguished awareness of the inhuman, the meditation on the absurd returns at the end of its itinerary to the very heart of the passionate flames of human revolt. Thus I draw from the absurd three consequences which are my revolt, my freedom, and my passion. By the mere activity of consciousness, I transform into a rule of life that which was an invitation to death, and I refuse suicide. I know, to be sure, the dull resonance that vibrates through these days, yet I have but a word to say, that it is necessary. When Nietzsche writes, it clearly seems that the chief thing in heaven and on earth is to obey at length in a single direction, 
In the long run, there results something for which it is worth the trouble of living on this earth. For example, virtue, art, music, the dance, reason, the mind. Something that transfigures, something delicate, mad, or divine. He elucidates a rule of a really distinguished code of ethics, but he also points the way of the absurd man. Obeying the flame is both the easiest and the hardest thing to do. However, it is good for man to judge himself occasionally. He is alone in being able to do so. Prayer, says Elaine, is when night descends over thought, but the mind must meet the night, reply the mystics and the existentials. Yet indeed, but not that night that is born under closed eyelids and through the mere will of man, dark, impenetrable night that the mind calls up in order to plunge itself into. If it must encounter a night, let it rather be that of despair, which remains lucid, polar night, vigil of the mind, whence will arise perhaps that white and virginal brightness which outlines every object in the light of intelligence. At that degree, equivalence encounters passionate understanding. Then it is no longer even a question of judging the existential leap. It resumes its place amid the age-old fresco of human attitudes. For the spectator, if he is conscious, that leap is still absurd. Insofar as it thinks it solves the paradox, it remains intact. On this score, it is stirring. On this score, everything resumes its place and the absurd world is reborn in all its splendor and diversity. But it is bad to stop, hard to be satisfied with a single way of seeing, to go without contradiction, perhaps the most subtle of all spiritual forces. The proceeding merely defines a way of thinking, but the point is to live. All right, fuck yeah. Thanks, Camus. Thanks, Nietzsche. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that existentialist cuddle puddle. As Camus says, the mind must meet the night. Um, so this is sort of along those lines. Uh, this is a poem that I wrote. Uh, which was arrived at via automatic writing after meditating on fear. Show me what I'm afraid to see. Shine light into the darkest of my many hearts and teach me to taste of blood and salty tears, to lose myself in the oblivion of ecstasy. I bow at your feet. Show me what I have come to learn. Take me in hand and school me in the manner of your priestess. Sing the darkest melody into my open lungs until I am gasping and dizzy, until I am half here and helpless to the terror of your light. All right. <laughs> Still feel pretty uncomfortable about reading that. This is a, an excellent opportunity for growth, I suppose. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to close by talking a little bit about a ritual that I ran on the most recent eclipse. It was the blood moon, and it's also the flower moon, so I called it the blood flower moon. I talked a little bit about the blood flower, which is the, a member of the milkweed family and the relationship that it has with monarch butterflies and, you know, transformation and all that good stuff. The ritual was dedicated to the goddess of love, and I closed it with some rhetoric that I wrote on the topic. You might have heard some similar on this show in the past if you've listened to all the episodes, but this is an updated version of it. All right, I want to say thank you so much for listening to Luxacult Podcast. I hope you enjoy this rhetoric. Uh, let me know what you think. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Do you want to hear more of it? Never want to hear it again? I'm curious about your thoughts. 
All right, I'd like to say a few words now about my own relationship with the goddess of love. In my work with her, I discovered that, for me, she's also a goddess of war. She taught me that loving something is what gives one the ability to fight, to face fear and terror and all manner of hardship so that what we love might flourish. To love is a courageous act. The Romans understood this. They had a saying, Ubi amor, ibi dolor. Where there is love, there is pain. Love requires vulnerability and sometimes sacrifice. It requires patience. Love will cause you pain, but it's also a basic requirement for human life. It's as important as food, and we are all entitled to have healthy and loving relationships if we are willing to work for that, to fight for that. Love can fuel us to fight for the changes that we want to make in our lives and in the world around us. Let us never fall prey to the petty panderings of hatred. Let us not hate hate, but pity it in its pathos. Let us recognize those who are filled with its madness as victims of a sickness which we will expunge through non-participation. Hate would only weaken us. When we fight with love in our hearts, we are unstoppable. When we fight with love in our hearts, we deserve victory. Tremble before she who with tender touch turns the fiercest warriors to dust and inspires the most secret of our many hearts moving us to taste of blood and salty tears, and lose ourselves in the oblivion of ecstasy. Bow before she who is fire, born of water, the brightest light, the morning star. Repent as she rides the dark moon's tides, and rejoice in the splendor of her chariot's rise. Victory! Victory to the goddess of love and war. And when you find yourself on the front lines of your own battle, whatever it may be, remember to resist. Resist by maintaining sovereignty of the self. Resist by maintaining love of the self. Resist by maintaining fierce loyalty to love and pleasure. Resist with acts of radical kindness. Focus on the path to better times. <laughs> All right, fuck yeah, much love. Don't forget to stay strong and stay fucking curious. Luxicold is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com. I'm Steve. I'm Jason, and we're the hosts of Grognostics, the podcast. Take a journey down the rabbit hole with us as we investigate some of life's most intriguing mysteries while sampling some of the country's finest craft beers. Some topics would include UFOs. What the heck was that? What? Oh, that spaceship? I got some sound effects for our promo. Pretty sweet, huh? Uh, it's a little annoying, actually. Where was I? Uh, UFOs. Oh, uh, the disappearance of the Roanoke colony. Seriously, Steve? Foreign accent syndrome, reincarnation, uh, mediums and psychics, nothing? Well, that's better. Cosmic quandaries, sex in the ancient world. Okay, that's it. I'm done. You can find the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcast. That's Grognostics, G-R-O-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Welcome.
to XP Planet. Greetings, friends, fiends, and lovers of strange and wondrous things. My name is Flood, and I am the host of XV Planets, a bi-weekly podcast of the odd and unusual. The core of XV Planets is a documentary-style exploration into paranormal investigations that I and my ever-evolving group of magical misfits conduct. We take a look at the history, the mystery, then go see it for ourselves, and then we bring that experience, and on occasion, that evidence, to your ears. Alongside the investigations, you'll find a treasure trove of other content, like interviews with authors, art historians, mediums, UFO researchers, cryptid hunters, fellow paranormal investigators, as well as deep dives into the arts, exploring topics like the killing joke frontman Jazz Coleman's magical practices and how that propelled the band forward, and whether or not David Lynch was really conducting occult rituals through Twin Peaks The Return. So follow XV Planets today and get caught up on the journey, because I can promise you, it only gets stranger from here. I'll see you on the fifth plane.